This time I'd like to call the hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to order. Um, today we're going to review the nominations of 10 important ambassadorial nominees to advance American foreign policy. We start with the first five who are before us. Um, in our first panel, we'll hear from Ms. Kathleen Kavalik to Romania, Mr. Ken Merton to Bulgaria, Mr. Christopher Robinson to Latvia, Mr. Bijan Sabet to the Czech Republic, and Mr. George Kent to Estonia. Today, diplomats are more critical than ever in advancing U.S. foreign policy and national security interests. The global security landscape is experiencing probably the most seismic shift since World War II. I recently returned um, from the Halifax International Security Forum in Canada right before Thanksgiving. And together with Senator Risch, the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we led the largest delegation to date, nine members of Congress, bipartisan, bicameral, uh, to that forum. And in each of the interactions that we had with foreign government officials, we felt the United States' commitment to providing continued support to Ukraine was mirrored and shared by our allies. And furthermore, that our allies um, very much appreciated the strong um, stand taken by the United States and the importance of our foreign policy. And while our diplomatic impact is forged and sustained by the dedicated public service, servants of the Foreign Service, we must have qualified, confirmed ambassadors on the ground to lead and support them. To tackle the myriad complex challenges we're facing, we have to have ambassadors heading our embassies and representing us in multilateral organizations. I want to take this moment to recognize my ranking member for today's hearing, Senator Portman of Ohio, because this will be our last time um, chairing a hearing together. Senator Portman, we've worked together on a whole range of issues on this committee from the and beyond, from the historic infrastructure deal to bipartisan support for Ukraine, and I'm really grateful for your partnership and for the leadership that you've shown in helping to, to lead the congressional support for Ukraine. Um, we had the opportunity to travel there on several occasions together, and it's very clear that your commitment to what's happening there is not going to end when you leave the Senate. So thank you for that. Um, let me introduce the nominees on our first of these two panels. I'm pleased that Kathleen Ann Kavalik has been nominated to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Romania. This would be something of a homecoming, as I understand you served at Embassy Bucharest earlier in your career. You are a career member of the Senior Foreign Service with the rank of Minister Counselor, and since 2019, you've served as the OSCE's Head of Mission in Bosnia and Herzegovina. She is an expert in the region, having served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, led the State Department's Office of Russian Affairs, and served at our embassy in Kyiv and twice in U.S. Embassy Moscow. Romania has a, been a long-standing leader in NATO with respect to the Black Sea region. This is a vital transportation area that must be protected as the economies and people of many nations depend on the safe, unimpeded passage of goods, grains, and supplies across its waters. Um, I'm going to stop in my introductions and see if I can ask Senator Markey um, if you would like to do the introduction of Mr. Sabat. Should I do an opening statement or should it ask Markey? 
Um, would you want to do your opening statement? Let's go ahead and let, let, let Ed leave. Go ahead, Senator Markey. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Chair and uh, Ranking Member Portman. I am pleased to introduce an accomplished and acclaimed son of Massachusetts, Bijan Sabat, President Biden's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Czech Republic. He's joined here today by his wife, Lauren, and his children, Sophia, Ellie, and James, are watching from home. Mr. Sabet's story is, in many ways, the embodiment of the American dream. Although he grew up in New York to um, immigrant parents, he had the good sense to move to Boston, where he attended my alma mater, Boston College. Unfortunately, however, while he had the good sense to fly high with the BC Eagles, he has failed to have the good sense to abandon the Yankees. But we forgive him for that one lapse. Uh, you of may judgment. forgive him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got his professional start in the somewhat warmer Silicon Valley. Luckily, his wife eventually convinced him to move back to Massachusetts. Mr. Savet continues to affirm his commitment to our beloved brain state, serving on the Board of Trustees of Boston College, as well as on the Board of Trustees of both the Beaver Country Day School and the St. Mark's School in Southboro. Mr. Savet has built an impressive career with accomplishments too numerous to list in their entirety, but including helping to build up numerous companies, including quite a few headquartered in Massachusetts, like Wayfair. Mr. Sabet has never forgotten the private sector's responsibility to its workers and their communities. He has been an advocate for CEOs in the tech world to stand up for their values and their employees. Recently, he has been focused on supporting climate-focused startups, working on several issues close to my heart. Always hungry for new challenges, Mr. Sabet has turned his considerable talents to public service. This nomination comes at an important time for the region. The United States and Czech Republic have a deep and abiding relationship. We are NATO allies, economic partners, and historic friends in the 20th century. Prague was on the front lines of the last hot war in Europe and the epicenter of the ensuing cold one. And today, as Europe confronts its biggest security challenges in decades, Prague is once again at the center of the storm. I commend Mr. Sabet for rising to meet this moment. Mr. Sabet, we congratulate you on your nomination. Massachusetts thanks you for your service, uh, and we thank you for appearing before the committee today. Uh, you are going to be an outstanding ambassador. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you very much, Senator Markey. We know your schedule may require that you leave, so feel free to do that at your leisure. Um, next, we have Mr. Ken Merton. He's nominated to represent us in Bulgaria, a reliable ally in an area of strategic importance to the United States, but where a fragile coalition government must tackle corruption and organized crime while also facing an economic downturn exacerbated by Russia's war. To its enormous credit, Bulgaria has stood with Ukraine despite historically close ties to Russia. This would be Ambassador Merton's third tour as chief of mission following successful assignments in Croatia and Haiti. As ambassador in Haiti, he led the U.S. government response to the 2010 Haiti earthquake, which involved over 22,000 U.S. military and thousands of civilian personnel in Haiti from numerous U.S. government agencies. He received the 2011 Ryan C. Crocker Award for Outstanding Leadership in Expeditionary Diplomacy, which recognizes U.S. diplomats who excel in the most challenging leadership positions overseas. 
I'm also pleased to see Christopher Robinson nominated to the position of ambassador to Latvia. Mr. Robinson is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasia. His nomination comes as at an important time for our continued collaboration with Latvia on resisting Russia's malign influence in Europe. Mr. Robinson has served as the senior political officer at our embassy in Moscow, deputy director for Russian affairs at the State Department, and political counselor at the U.S. mission to the OSCE, earning multiple State Department awards reserved for the finest among our diplomatic corps. And I'm Finally, I want to welcome Mr. George Kent, nominated to be U.S. Ambassador to Estonia. Mr. Kent has a distinguished record of service with the Department of State in Ukraine, Poland, Uzbekistan, Thailand, and Washington, and most recently oversaw policy toward Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. He previously led U.S. anti-corruption efforts across Europe and Eurasia. I appreciate that Estonia has been a valuable NATO partner and ally to Ukraine, contributing more military aid per capita than any other country, and hosting 60,000 Ukrainian refugees, a figure more than 4% of Estonia's population. Without further ado, I want to hand it over to the ranking member for his opening remarks, and then we will turn to our nominees for their opening statements. Senator Portman. Thank you very much, Senator Shaheen, and uh, my friend and my, um, my partner in so many legislative initiatives. Uh, I'm going to miss partnering with you here in the United States Senate, but I uh, look forward to continuing to stay in touch. And to my uh, colleagues uh, who are with us here who are already in public service, seven of the ten of you on these two panels already serve uh, our country as career members of our foreign service. Thank you for your service. And for all of you, thank you for stepping up to take on additional responsibilities. It's an impressive panel, and several of you have had the opportunity to work with, uh, or to talk to at least, over the years. Um, our first panel, we have Deputy Assistant Secretary Chris Robinson, who was just uh, discussed. He is um, heading to Latvia, should he be successfully confirmed. And he is no stranger uh, to working on these issues, including uh, most recently being in, in Moscow, which I think is good training for uh, this task. Unfortunately, our great uh, ally Latvia is feeling more and more cyber and other threats from Russia. And uh, so I think that background will be very helpful uh, that Ms. Mr. Robinson brings to the table. Um, I also see we have George Kent with us, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Estonia. I finally remember, Mr. Kent, uh, a meeting with you back in 2018. Uh, I think it was in the spring of 2018, and when you helped me to be able to um, get transportation out to the line of contact at the time. Uh, remember 2014 was when the Russians first invaded, and 2018 they was, there was a hot war going on in the Donbass. And I was able to go and see it firsthand, partly uh, due to your interventions. I appreciate that. Uh, I now want to hear uh, what we are going to do um, to try to help um, Estonia even more to push back on, again, the threats that they're facing, including cyber threats. By the way, the place where I was able to go was in the east near Bakhmut. And uh, seeing the recent photographs of Bakhmut uh, are heartbreaking. Uh, that part of the country has been utterly destroyed by Russia's brutal assaults and 
the Wagner Group in particular, uh, mercenaries. Um, so anyway, I look forward to seeing uh, how we can deepen our ties with Estonia. Um, next up, uh, Ken Merton is here, nominee for Bulgaria, uh, a strong ally of the United States. I have worked with Mr. Merton before because when he was at the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, he helped on a very sensitive issue uh, with regard to Haiti. And uh, I told you this, but I appreciate your personal involvement with my constituents and uh, eventually a successful outcome. Um, but I'm curious to know how you will strengthen our partnership with Bulgaria and fight Russia's efforts to exert malign influence over that country as well. Um, it's an important role right now. Uh, Ms. Kathleen Kavalik is here, who's a nominee for Romania. Uh, I was in Romania last year, and, and they have done yeoman's work to try to help with regard to Ukraine. They are suffering too, as you know, with the electrical um, issues that with Russia bombing the uh, infrastructures in, in Ukraine. They are affected directly. Uh, I'm glad to have the opportunity to see you before the committee, and I appreciate it talking to you in advance. Glad you're finally here. Um, and then finally, last up, uh, Mr. Bijan Sabay, who just talked about the ambassador to the Czech Republic, uh, the only non-career nominee in this panel. I'm curious to know how your private sector experience will serve you well in this important role with the Czech Republic, again, at a critical time in our relationship um, with, with Prague. Again, thank you so much. I'll now turn it back to my friend and colleague, Senator Shaheen. Thank you very much, Senator Portman. I would ask um, that we begin at this end with uh, Christopher Robinson, and if you, we will go down the table and each of you give your opening statements. Please begin. Chairwoman Shaheen, Ranking Member Portman, and distinguished members of this committee, it's a privilege to appear before you I am honored to be the nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Latvia, and I thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me. I want to start by recognizing those who've made it possible for me to be here today. First, I want to honor my wife, Donka, who is here with me today for her love, her commitment, and her support for over 27 years of marriage. I would not be here without her. We are blessed by our three daughters, Faith, Hope, and Charity. Charity also joins me here today. I want to thank them for their love and the sacrifices they have made growing up with the frequent moves and the demands of life in the Foreign Service. I'd also like to thank my mother, Eileen Robinson, and my father-in-law, Peter Todorov, my sister Jillian and brother Matthew, as well as my brother and sister-in-law, Ned and Neda Todorov, for their inspiration and steadfast support every step of the way. I'm a career Foreign Service officer with over 27 years of experience. I have served in Russia, Belarus, Nicaragua, and Iraq, among many other assignments. Much of my career has focused on supporting the freedom and independence of Europe, as well as defending human rights, often in some of the world's most authoritarian regimes. As the events unfolding in Ukraine today demonstrate, protecting and supporting these freedoms is fundamental to safeguarding our own national security. Most recently, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Russia, I've had the privilege to work with this committee to help implement policies to counter and deter Russian aggression. I thank the committee for the strong bipartisan support it has given to these efforts. If confirmed, my first priority would be to ensure the safety and security of US citizens in the Republic of Latvia. My second priority will be to enhance bilateral efforts to counter and deter Russia's aggression, particularly against Latvia, and, and regional efforts to strengthen transatlantic security. At the core of our relationship with Latvia 
is our bond as NATO allies. Latvian soldiers have served side by side with US soldiers in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Balkans, contributing to NATO missions and operations. Latvia hosts one of NATO's battle groups, and our service members train alongside Latvians to defend NATO territory. Latvia was among the first countries to send weapons to Ukraine and continues to support the government and people of Ukraine as they fight for their freedom and democracy. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees are currently living in Latvia, supported by the Latvian government. If confirmed, I will work with the Latvian government to strengthen our security partnership and our alliance through NATO. My third priority will be to collaborate with Latvia to address global challenges. Our partnership with Latvia is deep and productive and extends far beyond the security realm. As an EU member state, Latvia has a critical voice in Brussels on regulations in the single market, sanctions, and energy policy. Latvia shares U.S. concerns about China's human rights record, its strategic alignment with Russia, and its record of economic coercion. If confirmed, I will work with Latvia to strengthen international protections for human rights and the rules-based order. As host of the NATO Strategic Communication Center of Excellence, Latvia has worked with other countries in the region to counter disinformation from Russia and other malign actors. If confirmed, I hope to build on and deepen our bilateral cooperation to confront this growing challenge. Latvia has also committed to ending its dependence on Russian natural gas and is working with the U.S. government to identify diversified energy options, including liquefied natural gas and advanced nuclear technologies. If confirmed, I will work with Latvia to end its dependence on Russian energy. Finally, if confirmed, I look forward to working with a talented team at Embassy Riga to build on their successes and advance these shared goals together. I will continue to partner with Congress to further U.S. priorities in Latvia, and I enthusiastically await hearing from people across Latvia, sharing our ideas, and deepening people-to-people -people ties as we strive towards a better tomorrow. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Robinson. Mr. Kent. Chairwoman Shaheen, Ranking Member Portman, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for holding this hearing today. It is an honor and a privilege to appear before you as the President's nominee to be the Ambassador to the Republic of Estonia. I would like to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in me. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you, your staff, and your colleagues in Congress to ensure the security and welfare of U.S. citizens in Estonia and the hardworking Americans and Estonians at our mission. I will also work with you to advance regional security and NATO cooperation at a time of Russia's war in Ukraine deepen our bilateral trade and entrepreneurship tries, particularly in the digital economy in which Estonia excels, and combat hybrid threats and transnational crime, with a particular focus on cyber. Madam Chair, with your permission, I would also like to acknowledge and introduce two family members who are here with me today. I am deeply grateful to my wife, Velida, for moving across three continents with me over the past 27 years, and our son, Georgi, who along with his two sisters embraced our peripatetic life and constant changes in schools and friends. It has been my honor to serve our nation for 30 years in Central Asia, in Central and Eastern Europe, in Southeast Asia, and now as the President's nominee to be ambassador to Estonia. The pursuit of a Europe whole, free, and at peace has been the generational goal of our diplomacy during my entire career. This year, the United States and Estonia celebrate 100 years of diplomatic 
bilateral relations. Estonia exemplifies what it means to be a committed member of NATO. It consistently invests in armed forces with over 2% of GDP, aiming to gain 3% by 2024, deploys globally on security and peace missions, even as it shores up its own borders to deter Russia, which it considers an existential threat. If confirmed, I will work to ensure Estonia continues to strengthen its capabilities and ability to contribute to its own defense and to operate jointly with the United States and other NATO allies. This will strengthen European and transatlantic deterrence and defense, improve the credibility of our collective security architecture, and dissuade the increasingly assertive and dangerous activities by Russia and other adversaries. As you earlier mentioned, Madam Chair, Estonia has been a leader in the region's response to Russia's unjust war in Ukraine. Estonia is the largest contributor per capita of assistance to Ukraine, contributing more than $250 million in military aid and $25 million in economic and humanitarian assistance this year, as well as hosting almost 60,000 Ukrainian refugees, nearly 5% of its resident population. 2022 also marks the 82nd anniversary of the 1940 Wells Declaration, under which the United States refused to recognize the forced annexation of Estonia, as well as Latvia and Lithuania, into the Soviet Union. Estonia showed great strength and determination in overcoming Soviet occupation, restoring its independence in 1991, and making extraordinary progress to become a member of NATO and the European Union in 2004. Estonia has emerged as an exemplar of prosperity and transparent governance to the region and the world. If confirmed, I am committed to working with Estonia to promote our common goals of democratic values, human rights, and the rules-based international order around the world. The U.S. is also working with Estonia to deepen our trade and investment ties, to build back better from global pandemic, to set the rules of the road for the 21st century economy, including reliable supply chains, to strengthen energy security in the transition to a green economy, and stand united against non-market and coercive economic practices. Estonia also is a world leader in digital services and cybersecurity. Estonia hosts the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, which the U.S. joined in 2011. And in fact, the annual NATO cyber exercise started in Tallinn today. The United States and Estonia share a vision of a secure and open cyberspace in which all countries behave responsibly. If confirmed, I look forward to broadening our strong cooperation on cyber issues. In sum, the relationship between the U.S. and Estonia is as strong and important now as it has ever been. If confirmed, I look forward to representing our country and advancing U.S. interests and deepening our cooperation with Estonia to confront regional and global challenges and to promote transatlantic priorities worldwide. Madam Chair, Ranking Member, other members of the committee, I am grateful for the opportunity to have addressed you today, and I will be at your disposal to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kent. Mr. Merton. Thank you, Chairwoman Shaheen, and Ranking Member Portman, and distinguished members of the committee. I'm honored and humbled to be here, uh, to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to Bulgaria. Thank you for your consideration of my nomination. Should I be lucky enough to be confirmed, I commit to working very closely with you and your staffs. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge my wife, Susan, who's here today, and our daughters, Elizabeth and Carol. We are a foreign service family. Susan has accompanied me throughout my career, including three tours in Haiti. My daughter, Carol, is not here today, but is a first tour foreign service officer in Matamoros, Mexico. 
My family and I have had the honor of representing the United States overseas for 20 of my 35 years in the Foreign Service. I've been fortunate enough to have served six of those years as Chief of Mission in two very different countries. If confirmed, I believe I would bring relevant and broad-based experience to our mission in Bulgaria. My time as U.S. Ambassador to Haiti, in which I confronted the worst urban natural disaster in modern history, a cholera epidemic, and a hurricane, gave me numerous opportunities to demonstrate a full range of management, political, and public diplomacy skills. I led an embassy that ensured an effective transition from a 22,000-person military mission to a smaller civilian-led humanitarian mission. In Croatia, my team and I accompanied the government through the final stages to EU membership. I successfully advocated at every level of the Croatian government for the return of pre-war Jewish property to the Croatian Jewish community, resulting in the first repatriation of Jewish property since Croatian independence. My efforts also laid the foundation for Croatia to construct a liquefied natural gas terminal, thus making Croatia more energy independent particularly important consideration these days. If confirmed, these experiences would inform my sense of, the US, of U.S. priorities in Bulgaria. First and foremost, the well-being of U.S. citizens and embassy colleagues will be my most important and sacred responsibility. Since joining NATO in 2004, Bulgaria has consistently demonstrated its commitment to the alliance it contributed forces and sustained casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan. Russia's war against Ukraine makes our uh, coordination with Bulgaria all the more urgent. Bulgaria is today hosting a multinational NATO battle group that includes U.S. troops. It has registered more than 145,000 refugees from Ukraine uh, for temporary protection, fully supported sanctions against Russia, and in November, Bulgaria's parliament voted overwhelmingly in support of military assistance to Ukraine. Bulgaria's acquisition of a second tranche of F-16s will mark a significant step towards meeting Nate's NATO defense spending commitments. If confirmed, I will continue to grow our mission's engagement in security issues and support Bulgaria's efforts to combat Russian malign, Russia's malign influence. Bulgaria has taken positive steps towards energy, energy diversification particularly since Russia cut off natural gas supplies in April. The completion of the interconnector Greece-Bulgaria, which facilitates natural gas imports from Azerbaijan, uh, was a major achievement in this regard. We will continue to work together in this area, uh, should I be fortunate enough to be confirmed. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly to build on the outstanding work of my predecessors to strengthen the bilateral relationship with the Republic of Bulgaria and advocate for the priorities of the United States. Thank you for your time and consideration, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. Ms. Kavalak. Thank you, Chairwoman uh, Shaheen, Ranking Member Portman, and distinguished members of this committee. I'm honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to Romania. As we speak, Secretary Blinken is in Bucharest, uh, which underscores the importance of our long-standing partnership in Romania. <clears throat> Thank you for your consideration today of my nomination. Allow me first to introduce my husband, Mark Taplin, a retired Foreign Service officer, and as well as our three children, Ben, Sam, and Gwen, who are listening remotely today. 
I wish to thank them uh, from the bottom of my heart for all the great support they have given me in my career as we have traveled around the world together. I had the pleasure of serving in Romania once before, as you mentioned, as cultural affairs officer at U.S. Embassy Bucharest. In that role, I traveled throughout the country to carry out our public diplomacy programs and expand our people-to-people -people ties. I gained an appreciation for cultural exchange from my late father, Don Kavalik, a Spanish instructor, a Fulbright grantee, and proponent of good listening skills, which are so critical to effective diplomacy. In my diplomatic career, I focused on building coalitions, nurturing relationships, and listening. If confirmed, I look forward to applying these and other core diplomatic principles to America's vital relationship with Romania. To that end, uh, please allow me to outline my policy priorities that will guide my work as U.S. Ambassador to Romania if confirmed. First, I will commit myself uh, foremost to the safety and security of our mission team and of U.S. citizens living, working, and traveling in Romania. Second, if confirmed, I will advance our cooperation with Romania on vital security matters. Since the end of the communist dictatorship in 1989, Romania has made remarkable progress in building a genuine democracy and a market economy. Romania made it clear early on that uh, its goal was to join NATO and the European Union, and through hard work and determination, the country and its people succeeded. I was on hand in 2008 when Romania hosted the Bucharest NATO Summit, a source of pride for the entire country. My family and I joined the celebrations uh, in Sibiu on New Year's Day 2007, led by the then mayor, now uh, president, Klaus Johannes, that greeted Romania's official accession to the EU. Today, Romania is a model for other NATO members. It has budgeted 2% of its GDP for defense and most recently committed to raising its defense budget to 2.5%, much of it allocated to purchase U.S. equipment in its robust modernization effort. It hosts multinational NATO forces and is a long-standing contributor to NATO missions and operations worldwide. If confirmed, I will continue to strengthen this security cooperation. I'm determined to work closely with Romania as we stand united against the Kremlin's unprovoked, unjustified, and horrific war against Ukraine. Putin's aggression has only strengthened the Ukrainian people's desire to remain free and independent. The firm resolve of Romania has been especially laudable in this crisis. The country and its people have welcomed with open arms and hearts over 2.5 million Ukrainian refugees, more than 85,000 of which of whom remain in the country, and have generously supported those refugees with critical assistance and essential services. In addition, Romania has supported unprecedented sanctions to weaken Putin's war machine, and, added, and aided Ukraine through a wide range of other humanitarian and security efforts. Nor has Romania shied away from pushing back on the People's Republic of China's attempts to impose coercive economic arrangements on countries in Central Europe. Romania passed 5G legislation that excludes untrusted vendors from its 5G tender, blocked greater PRC involvement in Romania's civil nuclear industry, and instituted robust investment screening legislation to protect its critical infrastructure. If confirmed, 
I will coordinate closely with Romanian authorities to counter efforts by the PRC government to pursue steps that would weaken Romanian national security or economic standing. I also pledge to work on deepening and broadening our economic cooperation with Romania. I will encourage Romania's efforts to foster a business climate that facilitates U.S. investment. The country's efforts to advance clean energy technologies, including in nuclear and other renewables, are already a model for the region. Finally, I stand ready to support Romania's efforts to fight corruption and strengthen its democratic institutions, including in supporting a free press. In sum, I will commit myself to expanding our long-standing American partnership with Romania. This year, the United States and Romania are celebrating the 25th anniversary of our bilateral strategic partnership. I look forward to taking the next steps and building upon this very strong foundation. Thank you for the opportunity to appear today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Sabat. Thank you, Chairwoman Shaheen, Ranking Member Portman, and distinguished members of this committee. And thank you, Senator Markey, for the kind introduction. It is a profound honor to, be, to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to serve as United States Ambassador to the Czech Republic. I want to express my gratitude to the President and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me with this nomination. Before I begin, I'd like to introduce my family, starting with my wife, Lauren, who's here today. Lauren is my best friend and partner who makes everything I do possible. She's also the daughter of a Delaware police officer who is privileged to know the president who once chaired this committee. Our three wonderful children, Sophia, Ellie, and James, are watching online. I love you so much, and I'm so proud to be your dad. If confirmed, Lauren and James will join me in Prague, and I know our daughters will visit as often as they can. I also want to recognize and thank my parents, who taught me and my younger brother to cherish the democratic values and ideals of freedom and opportunity. Like so many, they immigrated to this country in pursuit of the American dream and became U.S. citizens as soon as they could. My father was born in Iran, where he completed medical school before traveling to the United States for his residency in the late 1960s. Here he met another young doctor, my mother, who had recently immigrated from South Korea. Born under Japanese occupation, she grew up during the Korean War with a deep sense of gratitude to U.S. service members who helped save South Korea from communism. I've spent the better part of my life and career supporting entrepreneurs, helping them make the most of their potential. I co-created one of our country's leading venture capital firms where we have supported hundreds of startups, leading to the creation of tens of thousands of jobs. I also serve on the boards of several educational institutions, including Boston College. I enjoy mentoring students and young professionals, particularly those with backgrounds that are underrepresented in the venture capital industry. If confirmed, I will bring that experience, energy, and focus on the next generation to the work that I do in the Czech Republic. If confirmed, I will also commit to using my experience to advance bilateral trade and investment by building relationships between the Czech and U.S. companies and entrepreneurs. To that end, I would like to outline five policy priorities that will guide my work as U.S. Ambassador to the Czech Republic if confirmed. First, if confirmed, I will have no greater priority than the safety and security of the entire embassy team and the thousands of U.S. citizen visitors and students who come to the Czech Republic each year. Second, if confirmed, I will support the Czech Republic in its outstanding efforts to promote regional security and protect Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity against Russia's aggression. 
I will also deepen our bilateral defense cooperation and NATO partnership and support the negotiations for the purchase of American-made F-35s. Third, if confirmed, I will promote U.S. companies as partners of choice for nuclear energy expansion, including small modular reactors, and for nuclear fuel diversification. I will look for ways to support, support all clean energy sources, especially U.S. companies working in renewable energy. Now more than ever, it's time to advance energy diversification and security. Fourth, if confirmed, I will work alongside our Czech partners to honor the legacy of former President Václav Havel in promoting democracy and human rights worldwide, especially in upholding media freedom and journalistic integrity. And finally, if confirmed, I pledge to keep this committee informed as I work to strengthen the alliance, friendship, and partnership between the United States and the Czech Republic. Madam Chair, Ranking Member Portman, and members of this committee, thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today. I welcome your questions. Well, thank you all very much. Um, Ms. Kavalik and Mr. Merton, I'd like to begin with both of you as you are being nominated to be ambassador to two countries that border the Black Sea and what we've seen since Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine is just how important the Black Sea region is. Senator Romney, who also sits on the Foreign Relations Committee, and I have legislation that would call for an interagency strategy on how we approach the Black Sea region. I wonder if either of you can speak to what current strategy is with respect to the Black Sea region um, and how you think we should be working to advance greater regional cooperation among Black Sea countries. And I don't know which one of you wants to go first. Mr. Merton. Happy to start. Uh, thank you, um, Madam Chairwoman. Well, first of all, I, we want to thank you for your leadership on this area, uh, in this area, in this geographic region. I think uh, recent events have borne out how really important uh, this area is for uh, several of our allies and friendly nations in the area. And I think uh, a redoubled focus in the Black Sea is, is, is well-deserved. I know the administration is uh, led by the NSC is looking at, at ways we can, uh, we can operationalize some of our activities overseas. Uh, in the Bulgarian context, I'll just say we are working hard to support Bulgarian defense modernization, including working with their Navy so they can protect their, their, uh, their seas. I think we need to uh, work with all friendly nations in the area uh, to continue to ensure that, uh, that commercial activity and benign naval activity can, can continue unimpeded in the Black Sea. So uh, should I be lucky enough to get confirmed, you have my commitment to stay in touch with you and your colleagues, uh, your staff. Uh, if you have ideas that we can advocate for, we're happy to hear them and happy to work further on them. I'll pass it over to Kathy. Thank you, um, thank you Senator uh, Shaheen, for that question and also for your um interest and support in this region, and that also from Senator Romney. I think uh, it's really important to, to raise the profile of this area, as we've seen in this uh, terrible war, how important uh, these, uh, this region is and what the risks are. 
Um, of course, the first priority is to ensure that Ukraine prevails in the war, uh, but we, uh, and, and there, uh, in that uh, respect, we uh, have uh, been uh, focusing on um, deepening our engagement in the region, uh, expanding our presence uh, in the littoral countries uh, since February uh, 24th. Uh, I think, as you know, there's a new uh, rotational brigade combat team in Romania, uh, and we are also uh, looking at energy uh, security and diversification as an important component of uh, supporting this region and strengthening uh, the Black Sea area. So I very much look forward uh, to uh, uh, working with you uh, and to supporting the administration as it develops uh, an approach uh, that, uh, on an interagency basis, uh, to um, uh, strengthen this area. Thank you both very much for that. Mr. Robinson and Mr. Kent, um, the countries that you are nominated to be ambassadors for, Latvia and Estonia, um, along with Lithuania, really are impressive in terms of their uh, shared economic and national security interests with the United States. I think certainly they have punched above their weight, um, to use a cliche, in terms of NATO and their willingness to stand up to Russia and its fight against Ukraine. So can you talk about how you will continue to work together to foster this collective advocacy for Baltic Sea countries? Mr. Robinson, you want to begin? Uh, thank you, Chairman Shaheen. Uh, I think the, the Baltic cooperation on this is fundamental. I think all three countries, but I could speak to, to Latvia, view Russia as an existential threat, and the tragedies and the horrors and, and that we've seen in Ukraine only amplify and deepen the sense of, of that, that we need to work together as a transatlantic community to counter and deter that threat for the long term, that even as Ukraine makes successes on the battlefield, that this is a long-term challenge. Uh, Senator, you noted correctly, Latvia spends more than 2% uh, on uh, to meet uh, its defense commitments. It is committed to 2.5% by 2025 and is looking at even moving to 3%. Uh, with this committee support, we have uh, expected to provide over $145 million in foreign military financing to help Latvia modernize and increase its equipment purchases to better um, deter Russian aggression for the future. And of course, as the center for hosting the NATO Center for um, Strategic Communications Excellence, it's been at the forefront of helping to develop tools and techniques to counter Russian disinformation, for example. So I think there are many, many ways that we continue to foster that cooperation, both among the three countries, in, in their defense outlook, in their energy security issues, uh, but also directly with bilaterally uh, with Latvia to deepen that partnership. Thank you, Mr. Kent. Chairwoman Shaheen, Chris and I worked this set of issues together as Deputy Secretaries of State, and we will be happy to continue that cooperation in the Baltics if confirmed. Uh, the Baltic uh, foreign ministers were just in Kyiv yesterday together, along with their Nordic counterparts. And I think this shows the strength of regional cooperation. Uh, it's why Sweden and Finland's joining NATO, if all members agree, are going to strengthen our northern and eastern flanks. 
And I think uh, the security assistance and security spending that, that Chris uh, mentioned is also critically important for Estonia. Uh, they've been receiving additional funds thanks to the appropriations from Congress, and they're dedicating that to buy the HIMARS system, which is also very well known now uh, from Ukraine. For every dollar that we've given in security assistance, the Estonians have spent uh, $2.60 of their own money. So I think this is showing how wise leveraging of our resources can contribute to common security for all, us all. And you have our commitment to continue to work with you and with each other, uh, if confirmed. Thank you both very much. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Chair Shaheen. Um, and to all of you, a hearty congratulations. Um, I can think of no greater honor than to represent the most exceptional nation in the world to the various countries that you're going to be serving. So my congratulations to you for your nomination and my appreciation to all of your families who are going to support you a great deal. Those of you who are career service officers know this, uh, and thank you for your service. And uh, to you, Mr. Sabat, you'll, you'll learn it in a way I think that will be very positive. Um, and I might stay with you, Mr. Sabat, for a moment. Um, I was pleased to hear your commitment to work with the Czech Republic to continue to strengthen the alliance there with NATO and deal with the situation that Russia has created in Ukraine. Uh, I encourage you to continue to work in that direction. There's a, an area I have a greater concern about, even more so than Russia, and that's China. And the Ukrainian, I'm sorry, the, the Czech government has demonstrated a determination to actually support and deepen ties with Taiwan. Uh, in fact, uh, the legislative leader of the Taiwan Legislative Yuan uh, actually visited the Czech Republic earlier this year. And he said, and I'd like to quote, the Czech Republic is a sanctuary of democracy for the whole world. I appreciate your support and help for Taiwan in times of need. I very much appreciated uh, that comment. And I'd like to ask you first, if you're confirmed, how will you work with the Czech government with respect to deepening their ties to Taiwan? Uh, thank you, Senator, for the question. And, and you raise a, a very important point. Um, I mean, Prime Minister Fiala's government has uh, made it clear that they have a very firm stance uh, towards China. In fact, there's broad skepticism uh, towards China throughout the government. Um, Czech, uh, the, um, uh, the Czech um, has, uh, Republic has had a critical stance on uh, China uh, for China's position on Russia, uh, 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 given the uh, illegal war against, against Ukraine. Um, the Czechs are participating in the 14 plus 1 uh, framework, uh, but have received very little investment from the PRC. And in fact, recently the Senate, uh, the Czech Senate on Foreign Relations uh, passed a non-binding resolution to, to leave the 14 plus 1, mm. um, uh, which uh, is, is quite, uh, was quite uh, uh, positive. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the Czech Republic has made real strides in collaborating with, uh, with Taiwan, both economically and academically. And uh, I think this is important um, uh, to, to uh, emphasize and, and to support. Um, I have read the uh, uh, Senator Risch report on, on China from 2020 out of this committee. So if confirmed, I will bring those, uh, many of those concerns to the post uh, and be mindful of those um, with me. And if confirmed, I will work with the embassy team to look for every opportunity to support uh, the Czech Republic's effort to uh, counter malign uh, influence um, support their efforts to um, uh, screen out uh, untrusted vendors um, and um, and to implement uh, their cybersecurity efforts. Excellent. Given your background in technology, I think you could be a tremendous asset in advising the Czech government, particularly on dealing with situations like 
that are presented by companies like ZTE and Huawei. So thank you for that. I'd like to turn to, um, you said so you work with the embassy staff there. There's a, in, in my conversations, I understand there have been some issues in the management section of Embassy Prague. Are you aware of the issues and do you have an update on the status of those? Have they been resolved? You know, my, my understanding is, uh, from everyone I've spoken to, uh, is the Embassy Prague team is an outstanding team, both uh, direct American hires and uh, locally employed staff. I think the challenge in the Czech Republic is um, you have uh, very low unemployment, uh, very high inflation, and I think uh, recruiting and retention are, are the uh, highest priority management challenges. I um, encourage you to, to pay close attention to the situation there, and it'll certainly enhance your effectiveness to have that working well. And I understand the challenge you raised, too, in terms of uh, the competitive dynamic of the marketplace. You mentioned something that's of keen interest to me, and that's your desire to work with the Czech government uh, to advance investments in energy sources such as nuclear energy, small modular reactors. Uh, I just would like to remind you that I'm a senator from the state of Tennessee. Oak Ridge National Labs and an entire industry is built up there that could be very helpful in that regard. So if you're confirmed, I would encourage you to reach out to find a way to work together. And I would love to volunteer resources from my home state to, to come and assist. When I was ambassador to Japan, they came over to help me in dealing with some situations that had arisen around Fukushima. I think you might find that very helpful as you advance that, uh, that, that arena. And congratulations uh, for a business person stepping into this role. I think you'll bring a unique set of capabilities and um, perspective should you be confirmed. Thank you. Thank you. I have my commitment. Spoken from experience, Senator Haggerty. Um, Senator Kane. Thank you, Chairman Shaheen, and congratulations to the members of this panel, highly qualified. I'm just going to ask one question, and I'd like maybe Mr. Robinson, you to address it and then just move uh, right from my right to the left, and it deals with energy uh, policy. I, I'm very, very complimentary of the Biden administration's strategy to forge very diverse nations into a quite unified coalition to support Ukraine against the Russian illegal invasion. I don't think it's perfect, though, and here's an area where I'm troubled and increasingly troubled, and that is, I think sometimes U.S. energy policy, we want to do a number of different things that are often in conflict with each other. We want to promote green energy to fight climate change. We should do that. We want our allies to develop their own energy resources. They should do that. We also want to help allies wean themselves away from over-reliance on petro-dictators like Russia or Iran or the Saudis or Venezuela. We should do that. Sometimes those are inconsistent goals, and I have yet really to hear the Biden administration articulate a harmonized view of the way we can accomplish those things. The way to do it is probably through phasing. I'm not going to ask you to respond to my critique, but here's where I'm worried. Recently, statements out of the EU have shown some anxiety about U.S. policies. As their energy prices go up, as we're starting to take some trade actions with respect to green energy that affect some of their domestic industries, you see rumblings out of the EU. As we're coming into the winter, that could get worse. So what can the U.S. do to help each of the countries that you hope to be in to deal with the energy crises that are acute all over the world, but particularly acute in Europe uh, with nations that have had to rely upon Russian energy sources? And Mr. Robinson, I'd like to start with you. Thank you, Senator Kane, and I, I, I agree this is really one of the most foremost issues, whether it's countering Russian aggression or deepening our bilateral partnership or enhancing transatlantic security, and above all, addressing climate issues for the long term, is to get these issues right. I also want to say, having been Deputy Assistant Secretary for Russia, 
my enormous gratitude to the, this committee for its leadership on European energy issues over a number of years. That strong bipartisan uh, voice has been very clear from CATSA to PISA, uh, and I, I thank the committee for the leadership on that. W with regard to Latvia, I think this is where we have great opportunity um, to address um, the convergence of these different issues, as, as, as you rightly point out. Uh, Latvia is committed to, has long warned that Russia uses energy as a weapon and they need it to transition to other sources and means for energy for its own national security. They get nearly 50% of their energy, electrical energy from hydro, and they're looking to expand into wind and other sources of renewable that provide an opportunity for U.S. bilateral partnership. As my colleagues have also mentioned, Latvia has joined, uh, like others, the first program at the State Department to look into small modular nuclear reactors. And then lastly, they are looking at increasing, and they have prioritized for the nearer term, increasing LNG imports and, and have, uh, are looking to build a new terminal to be able to expand that. So Latvia has committed to moving to carbon neutral by 2050 and really prides itself on making progress in this area. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for U.S.-Latvia bilateral partnership and our companies and, and our technology in these areas to do this uh, both to address climate and also to enhance energy security for the region. Mr. Kent, without repeating anything that Mr. Robinson has said. Estonia's area of current expertise is in shale oil production, and that's where they get over 50% of their energy. Like Latvia, they are interested in exploring small modular reactors where U.S. technology could help. A shared challenge the Baltics face is that their electricity grid is still tied to Russia and Belarus. And so I think our national labs uh, have expertise in, in gaming out how they might be able to accelerate uh, switching to the European energy grid. So again, I think combination of our expertise as well as our technology can help uh, Estonia uh, be independent. And they are cutting themselves off of Russian oil and gas ahead of the EU uh, deadlines because for them it's a matter of principle and they're willing to pay for the inflated costs of energy. Mr. Merton. Well, we've been working with Bulgaria on diversifying their their energy, uh, both supply and the types of energy they use. I'm happy to report that on the 1st of October, uh, the Bulgarians and the Greece opened up the uh, interconnector Greece-Bulgaria, which will allow the Bulgarians to receive gas from Azerbaijan. Uh, as of right now, I understand they receive no Russian gas anymore, which is good. Russia cut them off uh, in April. Uh, we're also, the embassy, and we will continue to do this should I be confirmed, have been working with them uh, to look into their nuclear uh, energy supply, how do they can develop that further. We're looking, we've funded a, a $300,000 study to help them explore options with small modular reactors. Uh, we are working with them on resourcing their uh, uh, supply of nuclear fuel for their existing plants. Uh, currently, those are supplied by Russia. We believe that, that Westinghouse could be another uh, source for them. So we're looking at, uh, at, at other options. Uh, Bulgaria's got a lot of attention from the administration. We've had Emma uh, uh, Hochstein has been out there, uh, our uh, Assistant Secretary for Energy. Uh, Jeff Pyatt has recently been to Bulgaria. Uh, this is front and center of our relationship and will remain so should I be uh, lucky enough to be confirmed. I'm over time, but could I ask the other two to pithy, pithy responses? Um, 
thank you so much for the question. This is also a huge priority for Romania, which is fortunate in that uh, it has already uh, greatly diversified its energy uh, system and with U.S. help is doing, will be um, expanding in the area of nuclear power. Um, Romania recently signed an agreement uh, to, with uh, U.S. Uh, company NuScale uh, on small modular reactors and is seeking to become a center in uh, Europe uh, for this technology. Um, also recently, uh, uh, Exim signed two letters of interest uh, to help uh, complete uh, the build out of the Chernovoda nuclear power plants uh, for different uh, locations. Uh, so that's another area I will be following up on uh, in my, if, if I am confirmed. Um, a U.S.-led consortium uh, in uh, Black Sea Oil is also working to bring uh, Black Sea uh, gas online uh, from Romania. And uh, Romania is also shown its leadership in providing energy to Moldova, uh, which is suffering from, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, cut off from uh, energy supplies from uh, Russia. Uh, so I will be following up in all these areas. Thank you. Mr. Sabat. Senator Kane, thank you for the question. Um, the Czech Republic has had a historic reliance on, on Russia for uh, natural gas and oil. I think 97% of their uh, natural gas consumption has come from, from Russia. Uh, so it's a, it's a substantial issue. Um, you know, the United States is engaged in a number of areas here. Um, number one is establishing new energy sources, new energy uh, distribution routes, uh, fuel types, et cetera. I'm pleased that Westinghouse, an American company, has won the tender for uh, the nuclear facility at, at, uh, in Duchovny. Um, it's a 10-year uh, agreement, uh, which is a big step to transitioning from uh, nuclear energy. There's currently another tender at a uh, second facility at uh, Temelin, and, um, and um, we're clearly hoping that that also goes uh, towards Westinghouse. And if I'm confirmed, I'll be an active advocate for uh, U.S. Um, uh, interests there. Um, the Chez also seeks to be a first mover with SMRs in, in Europe. The, com uh, the company is engaged with six uh, pilots at the moment, and U.S. companies are involved in uh, a number of these negotiations. And if confirmed, I'll be advocating uh, for those um, uh, procurement opportunities as well to make sure we're on a level playing field. Um, and I commit to you that I will advocate for clean energy sources as a, as, um, as a way to not only deal with our climate crisis, but as a way to deal with energy security and independence for the Czech Republic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chairman Sheen. Thank you, Senator Kane. Um, I would like to do another round of questions. I have a couple more questions. I, I want to go back to the conversation we had about the commitment from both Latvia and Estonia to NATO and to um, complying with the 2% of their defense spend commitments. And just ask um, for those of you representing other countries, um, Mr. Spett and Mr. Merton most specifically, how can we encourage both the Czech Republic and Bulgaria to reach their 2% of GDP requirement for NATO? Mr. Merton. Um, thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, we've been working with the Bulgarians, uh, and, and we were very happy that they signed uh, an agreement with us to buy one tranche of uh, F-16 fighters. This was a major investment for them, uh, $1.3 billion. This is 
not the European Union's richest country, and for them to uh, devote those kind of resources to that, we think that's that's pretty important. We're delighted that the Parliament has approved their purchase of an additional eight uh, F-16s. This is going to be uh, a big investment for them, and this is going to take them, I think, a long way into meeting their commitments. Um, you know, they've certainly, should I be lucky enough to be confirmed, we will continue to uh, encourage them to do their utmost to uh, work with us on defense modernization, uh, focusing their procurement on American uh, products. Uh, and uh, I, I think we're going to be, uh, I hope we'll be pushing on an open door there. That's encouraging. And I appreciate that they have many challenges that they're dealing with. Mr. Sabat. Uh, Senator Shaheen, thank, uh, thank you for the question, um, Chairman Shaheen. Um, you know, the Czech Republic is a, an important NATO ally and security partner with a strong track record of, of joint missions in Europe and, and elsewhere. The Czechs served courageously uh, with the United States in Afghanistan. And um, the Czechs are a framework nation uh, leading a, a new NATO, NATO battle group in Slovakia and have contributed 650 uh, troops. Uh, it is the case that Czechs are currently short of their NATO commitment. Uh, this year, uh, they have in their budget 1.35% uh, of GDP uh, for their military spend. Um, but they have announced uh, that they are going to meet their NATO pledge uh, and their Wales defense investment uh, targets by 2024. Um, in addition to the procurement of uh, eight Bell Textron helicopters, um, they, uh, the foreign ministry uh, of the Czech Republic is uh, pursuing foreign military sales of 24 F-35s. And um, if I'm uh, confirmed, uh, you have my commitment to be an active advocate to help the Czechs uh, um, achieve their uh, goals for uh, their NATO commitments and uh, advancing their military capacity. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Madam Chair. Welcome to each of the witnesses. Uh, Mr. Kent. You have been outspoken throughout your career uh, speaking against corruption. And I, and I want to talk about corruption. I want to talk in particular about corruption in the current administration. And I have serious concerns about corruption of President Joe Biden that extends for considerable time, both his time as president and his time as vice president. To take one obvious and troubling example, Accounts linked to the Biden family's personal finances received millions of dollars through ties to CEFC China Energy. This is where we get the infamous quote about 10% to the big guy from the Chinese communists. But you've also been involved very directly with Ukraine and corruption in Ukraine. And I will say you showed real courage speaking out against what I think was the very obvious concerns of corruption of Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden in Ukraine in particular. On November 13th, 2019, you testified to Congress that you had become concerned with Hunter Biden's status as a board member of the Ukrainian natural gas company, Burisma. You said you had raised those concerns to the White House in February of 2019. 2015. And in particular, what you said is, I became aware that Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma. Soon after that, in a briefing call with the national security staff of the office of the vice president in February of 2015, I raised my concern 
that Hunter Biden's status as a board member could create a perception of a conflict of interest. T tell me, why did you have this concern about, as you described, a perception of a conflict of interest? Well, Senator, I can give you and every member of this committee uh, my uh, commitment that I will always raise concerns uh, to members of any administration and to Congress uh, when I have uh, concerns. And so I was made aware of information and I passed that along to the staff of uh, the Office of the Vice President. And so why were you concerned? Why were you concerned about Hunter Biden being on the board of Burisma? The issue at hand was the owner of the company's Lachevsky uh, had awarded himself gas contracts. And as I testified both uh, in the impeachment hearings and uh, in the Johnson-Grassley hearings of 2020, uh, our concern was about uh, the corrupt acts of Zlachevsky, the ex-minister, and uh, the FBI had been pursuing uh, freezing his assets. And it was uh, in the interest of the United States to uh, remain at the gold standard of our own uh, actions. So the Ukrainian oligarch who owned Burisma, there was very substantial evidence of corruption on his part and he named Hunter Biden to his board of directors. To your knowledge, does Hunter Biden speak Ukrainian? I've never talked to uh, Hunter Biden, no. To your knowledge, did he have any knowledge before serving on that board about anything concerning oil or natural gas? I'm not aware of his CV. To your knowledge, did Hunter Biden have any qualification whatsoever for that board job other than the fact that his daddy was the sitting vice president at the time? Uh, Senator, I, no one consulted me about who was on the board of uh, Burisma. There was another American, Kofor Black, who was a former... Okay, I, I asked a question. To your knowledge, did, did Hunter Biden have any qualification to be on that board other than the job his daddy had at the moment? I am not familiar with his resume, sir. Okay. He was paid $83,000 a month by this Ukrainian oligarch. You're an expert in Ukraine. Have you ever been paid $83,000 a month? I'm a public servant, sir. I've never served on a corporate board. So does that mean, no, you haven't been paid $83,000 a month? I have not been paid $83,000 a month, no, sir. So, look, the concern here is not Hunter Biden's own problems, but rather it is official corruption from the then Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, and now the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Let me ask you, while his son was on the board of Burisma making a million dollars a year, did Joe Biden do anything that benefited the corrupt oligarch who was paying his son? Uh, Vice President Biden led our efforts to fight corruption in Ukraine. Let me ask you the question again. Did Vice President Joe Biden do anything that benefited the corrupt oligarch who was paying his son a million dollars a year? He did not. He did not. Well, it's interesting. Someone who disagrees with you, Mr. Kent, is Joe Biden. And I want to read from what he said on January 23rd, 2018 at the Council of Foreign Relations. Quote, this is Joe Biden speaking. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev. And I was supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I'd gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, the prosecutor that was investigating Burisma. And they didn't. So Biden continues. I said, no, nah, I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion dollars. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving here in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, 
you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. Let me ask you something. Do you think Joe Biden holding a billion dollars hostage to force the Ukrainian government to fire the prosecutor that is investigating the corrupt oligarch who's paying his son a million dollars a year, did getting that prosecutor fired benefit that oligarch? Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Van Are Hall. you going to allow him to answer the question, Madam Chairman? I am not going to allow him to answer the question. I'm Why are you covering for the him. vice president? Do you not I'm want not... him to answer that question? He said that, that the vice president I, has I nothing to benefit I think the it's unfortunate for you, Senator Cruz, to put in position that are uncomfortable the nominees to be our ambassadors. Okay, this is because his they sworn have, testimony. This is I his sworn that, testimony. I he, understand that you want to cover for the vice president. That he is going to raise those concerns anytime. Was his testimony he has true or false that Biden did nothing to benefit the oligarch? Let him answer the question. Was. Why are you afraid of him answering the question? I'm not. I just want to move on. Because but you won't let him answer. I, I started... asked a yes/no question. Will you allow him to answer the yes/no question? Yes, you can answer yes or no. Thank you. The prosecutor who was fired by the Ukrainian parliament did nothing to investigate Slachevsky, and everything that Vice President Biden, the State Department, and the U.S. Embassy did acted in good faith to reduce corruption and help the Ukrainian so people. So firing him did not benefit the oligarchy. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, You're protecting you. the, pre the president thank, well. Thank, thank you. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And I'm going to return in a moment to the comments of Senator Cruz. But first, uh, congratulations to all of you on your nominations. Uh, to all of you who are Foreign Service uh, officers, thank you and your families. I grew up in a Foreign Service family. I appreciate uh, all that you do. Um, and Mr. Sabet, congratulations to you. And I do want to echo the comments made by my colleague, Senator Haggerty, uh, regarding the importance of making sure that the Czech Republic is not bullied by China because of its relationship with Taiwan. I think it's very important that the United States, whether in the Czech Republic, Lithuania, other parts or places around the world, makes it clear that the United States is going to respond to that bullying by making clear we support those relationships. Um, Mr. Uh, Kent, uh, let me just say at the beginning, uh, and I think you underscored this in your testimony, that there's been absolutely no evidence, zero, including in the Johnson-Grassley investigation, that suggesting that the State Department, you or the Vice President, Vice President Biden at the time, or any other officials made any changes to U.S. policy because of Hunter Biden's role on Burisma's board. Isn't that true? Yes, Senator. And Senator Cruz, if he'd read the results of the investigations conducted in the Congress itself and the testimony, would know that full well. I wish we saw the same level of outrage back in the day when the Trump administration was withholding badly needed weapons to Ukraine in order to get the Ukrainian government the time to come up and manufacture dirt on the Biden family. I didn't hear a lot from my colleague, Senator Cruz, complaining about that uh, at the time. Now, if I could um, just turn quickly to the issue of Estonia. And um, Mr. Kent, you may know, you may not know, the state of Maryland has a special relationship uh, with Estonia. We have a long-time relationship between the Maryland National Guard uh, and the Estonian military in the area of cybersecurity. Um, we have a number of sister city relationships um, between cities in, in Estonia and in Maryland, so I look forward to working with you to further cement the ties between the state of Maryland 
and Estonia. Uh, let me ask you about the issue of money laundering in Estonia. Um, and, and I think you know that uh, Estonia over the years um, has had trouble within its banking system for being a place where Russian oligarchs go to launder a lot of their money. I know they're making progress. What's your assessment of the situation today, and, and what can we do to help them strengthen the security of their banking system with respect to uh, anti-money laundering efforts? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator, and I am also very grateful for the Maryland National Guard uh, for that great state partnership. So we welcome you to come often and uh, help uh, support that process. Uh, in terms of uh, an integrity of the financial system, I think this is a challenge that both Estonia and Latvia have taken on. We do have uh, U.S. Uh, Secret Service representation at our embassy in Estonia, and I think the U.S. law enforcement community as well as my Treasury colleagues are committed to work with Estonia to ensure that their uh, financial system is also free from malign influence and undermining of dirty money from Russia in particular, but in general. So you have my commitment to work with you, your colleagues, and with Estonian colleagues to ensure that they're not, their systems are, have integrity and can avoid being undermined by uh, malign influences. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, Ambassador Merton, um, I listened to the testimony, um, uh, and I agree that all of the countries where you're going to be the United States um, representatives, our ambassadors, to have been firm in standing up against uh, Putin's aggression and supporting Ukraine. Um, in, the case of, uh, in the case of Bulgaria, uh, there is a particular energy situation pending right now that I don't think has been discussed. Uh, and that is the question of their continuing uh, relationship with Luxoil. Uh, and their decision uh, to continue refining that oil, not just for domestic purposes, not just for domestic purposes, which I get, uh, but for exports. Whereas you know there's a real, very real question as to whether that, that violates the commitment undertaken by the EU not to uh, import uh, Russian oil. Can you speak to that issue and, and how you might um, help reduce Bulgaria's uh, dependence on Russian oil. And as you well know, we have a, a December 5th, I believe, date coming up where the United States is leading an effort to impose a, a price cap on Russian oil. And, and, and how will their decision, if they continue to export that oil, how would that impact that? Well, thanks for the question, Senator. I am, am not going to pretend to be an expert in all the ins and outs of this complex, complex issue. I do know that, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, uh, energy issues are front and, cent front and center of the State Department's uh, engagement with uh, the government of Bulgaria. We've had uh, visits by uh, uh, Amos Hochstein, as well as our Energy Assistant Secretary, Greg Pyatt, out there. We have been working with the Bulgarians to look at ways that they can uh, reduce this. This is uh, a historical uh, uh, legacy commitment, as I understand it, which uh, which is obviously problematic in the current circumstances. Um, I think we need to be working closely with our other European uh, colleagues, those in the EU and those in the European Commission, uh, to see what mechanisms we can, uh, what tools we can give the Bulgarians to to break this relationship. Uh, it might take a little bit of time, but I think it's worth. We'll certainly have my commitment that I work on that. Um, Madam Chair, I, I do think it's important we have a united front 
I think we need to support the uh, EU decision uh, to not um, continue to import Russian oil. And the reason the Bulgarian decision is troubling is, is not so much the part of it where they would continue to use that oil for their own consumption, but if they continue to export that, that is obviously a leak in, in the regime and, and breaks that united front. So I hope you'll convey at least my concerns uh, about, about that decision. Thank you, Madam. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Senator Brasso. Uh, thanks, Madam Chairman. Um, Congratulations to all of you. Uh, Mr. Robinson, I want to visit with you about some of my trips to uh, Latvia and discussions with uh, Latvian leaders over the last decade and a half. The security of our NATO allies is critically important, especially in light of the increased aggression from Russia, but also from China. And as a result, NATO is focused on increasing its presence in the Baltic states, uh, increasing the amount of military aid being given to the countries to strengthen their defenses. What additional efforts could help uh, Latvia bolster its, uh, its security? And what can specifically be done uh, by the U.S. to reinforce Latvians' defenses? Great. Thank you, Senator Broso, and thank you for your, your leadership and your engagement with Latvia and on a range of transatlantic security issues over a number of years. Um, uh, Latvia is committed to increasing its defense expenditure, including on, on military equipment. Uh, as I've mentioned before, we expect to provide $145 million in additional foreign military financing to help Latvia in this effort. They're looking at anti-ship missiles, um, HIMARS systems, aircraft. They will be receiving Blackhawks in, in the year ahead. Um, they, uh, Canada is the lead. Uh, nation for the NATO battalion, and we are working very closely with, with Canada and Latvia to make sure that those commitments and presence is there. As, as you know well, Senator, we have committed to a heel-to-toe presence in the Baltics. We've increased our tempo of exercise and presence. We just had a Coast Guard cutter in Latvia a few weeks ago as another visible manifestation of that. So I think all these uh, uh, platforms provide ways that we can build and deepen this partnership for what will be a long-term challenge to counter and deter Russian aggression and bolster Latvian security. Okay, and then moving, Mr. Kent, moving next door to Estonia. Uh, earlier this year, Estonia announced their intent to end imports of Russian gas by the end of this year. Uh, in April, Finland and Estonia agreed to develop that floating liquefied natural gas terminal. <clears throat> They've uh, since agreed to charter a vessel for U.S.-based um, energy for 10 years. Um, how soon will that that joint floating storage and regasification unit come online? I'm not sure. Do you know? I believe it's starting this winter, and it's going to be located in Finland, sir. And what, what impact do you think it's going to have on energy security in all of Europe? I, I think the variety of locations that are increasing uh, take-on points of LNG really helps the region, and because they then have interconnectors, uh, putting additional gas into the system helps regionally these countries survive uh, the, the lack of Russian sources and pressures from Russia. And do you support increasing U.S. exports of natural gas to Europe to help reduce Russia's natural gas influence? Very much so, sir. Okay, thanks. And then, Mr. Robinson, back to you on energy as well. You know, Russia uses energy resources as a weapon. Uh, it's a long-term weapon for them. They get it. It's a currency. It's a universal currency. Uh, so the, the world has seen Russia cut off gas supplies to Europe. In July, Gazprom halted natural gas supplies to Latvia. Uh, for a week, Latvia is working to end imports of Russian gas. In fact, the Latvian parliament passed legislation this summer to ban imports of Russian gas uh, to, into the country. 
by January, just coming up now in, in next month. Do you know what, what's the status of Latvia's efforts to end its reliance on Russian gas? Thank you, Senator. Uh, Latvia it does look to end its uh, all imports of Russian uh, gas by 2023. I expect that they will be ahead of schedule. They've been looking to fill uh, their, all their storage ahead of the winter season, and uh, they have prioritized building an LNG terminal uh, as a national uh, priority for, the, for investment. They're also looking at diversifying their sources of energy to small modular nuclear reactors and wind energy. So all of these provide ways to reduce and eliminate Russia's dependence. And you have my commitment, sir, to continue to work with Latvia and this committee to make that process happen. And then you support U.S. exports of natural gas to Europe to help replace the Russian natural gas. Absolutely, sir. Great. Uh, and I think you made the point, you said they're already filled the storage of natural gas in Latvia for I, the upcoming... I believe they were working on that and that they expected to meet that objective. Okay. And then, Mr. Kent, the, the security of our NATO allies is critically important, uh, especially in light of increased aggression by Russia and China. Let's... Um, Get to the next. I think I've just one out of line. There it is. Uh, to both of you, in the last time I have left, um, the Baltic states reached an agreement with the European Commission to connect their electricity grids with Europe by 2025. Uh, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania have long been connected to Russian electric grid. Uh, the grid operators in Europe indicated that they could immediately implement the switch in the event of Russia cuts them off. Uh, do you know what the status is right now of connecting the Baltic states to the European grid? Sir, they do have a plan uh, that would take several years, uh, and it's quite expensive. It's about a billion dollars to implement. There is contingency planning if the Russians were to cut them off the grid, and U.S. laboratories are helping with that contingency planning. Yeah, are there things that we could do to expedite that? Because we know how Russia behaves in these situations like this. I think this, the concern, Senator, is that Russia might use that as an opportunity to disconnect the grid ahead of time. So as my colleague mentioned, we are working very closely with the three countries, a number of projects underway to make sure that that process is ready. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Chairman. Thank you, um, Senator Brasso. I know that uh, Senator Shaheen is on her way back. Uh, I do, I'll take this opportunity. Um, Mr. Robinson, to ask you a question. As you know, Latvia has become an important haven for Russian journalists um, who are fleeing persecution uh, in Russia and has become really a hub, I think, uh, for opportunities to try to get good information back to the people of Russia. Can you talk a little bit more about how we can support uh, that ongoing effort so that we can get the truth to, to penetrate more of uh, Russia's efforts to keep it out? Absolutely, Senator. This is a key priority, and if confirmed, this will continue to be a priority for me, and I will work closely with this committee. Um, there, there, are, there are two factors here. Yes, as Putin intensified his crackdown on his own people ahead of this war, many Russian uh, human rights leaders and, importantly, independent media organizations fled Russia and set up their, their uh, operations in Latvia. Latvia did a lot uh, to welcome these groups in and facilitate their entry and to help them get a footing to continue to communicate the truths about what's happening in Russia and Russia's war in Ukraine back to the Russian people. In addition, more than 30% of, of Latvia's population is either ethnic Russian or Russian uh, speaking. And this provides a real opportunity for us to continue our public diplomacy and messaging efforts to reach that community and to continue our efforts to tell the truth about what's happening in Ukraine 
and in Russia and Putin's atrocious war against the Ukrainian people. So we, we have a number of programs underway and we are committed. We thank the committee for its support for those efforts and we are committed to supporting uh, independent Russian journalism and the access of Russian people to fair and independent media. Uh, thank, thank you, um, thank you for that. Um, let me just say to uh, Ms. Kavaletz, congratulations uh, on your nomination. Um, there are two uh, people who I've had you know, long-term friendships with who are our prior ambassadors um, to Romania, Al Moses, um, as well as Jim Rosapep, who's currently now a Maryland state senator. So they both asked me to pass on their best wishes. And they're, of course, uh, if you haven't already, available for any, any conversations uh, you may have uh, as, you, as you head off or after you arrive. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, is the senator should Okay. All right. It looks like there are no further questions. Again, congratulations to all of you on your nominations. I look forward to supporting all of your uh, nominations. And I think we're going to be turning to a new panel momentarily, but no reason for all of you to, to wait around for that. So congratulations, and we will do our very best uh, to, to have these votes as soon as possible. The hearings adjourn. Good afternoon. Congratulations to all of our nominees this afternoon. We are in the middle of votes, as I tried to explain to each of you. And um, so we expect senators to come in and out. But in the interest of trying to move the panel along, I'm going to go ahead and begin. And uh, very pleased to introduce our nominees, Mr. Manuel McCaller to Tajikistan, Ms. Stephanie Sanders-Sullivan to the African Union. Mr. Henry Jardine to the Republics of Mauritius and Seychelles. And the hearing will also review the nomination of Mr. Felice Gorardo uh, to be ambassador to the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and Mr. Richard Weiner to be ambassador to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So um, let me do brief introductions of each of you, and then we will ask you to give your opening statements. Manuel McCaller has been nominated to the position of ambassador to Tajikistan. His foreign service career has been marked by distinguished service and depth of knowledge of Central Asia, including prior service in Dushanbe as political counselor and acting deputy chief of mission. More recently, he served as deputy chief of mission at our embassies in Nepal and Mongolia. I'm also pleased to see Stephanie Sanders Sullivan nominated to lead our mission to the African Union as she's worked on African issues in Washington and in the field for more than 20 of her 30-plus year distinguished career and is revered as a successful leader and manager by her State Department colleagues. Senator Menendez just joined us. He is the chair of this committee. Senator Menendez, would you like to go ahead and do your introduction? And then I will continue with the remaining um, nominees. Well, thank you, Madam Chair, uh, for conducting the previous panel and this panel. It's an important part of what we do in the Foreign Relations Committee is reviewing the nominees for various positions and uh, we're pleased that our subcommittees um, and our ranking uh, chairs and ranking members of our committees are willing to do so. So thank you very much for doing so. Uh, congratulations to all of the nominees for their nominations. 
Uh, I'm particularly here to uh, introduce uh, Felice Goroldo, the nominee to be the U.S. Alternate Executive Director of the World Bank. At a time when China is increasingly willing to use its economic power to pressure other nations to do its bidding, when Latin America is trying to recover from the economic impact of the COVID pandemic, when Putin's war in Ukraine threatens the food supply of developing nations around the world, strong, dependable leadership at the World Bank has never been more important. And Felice Gorodo has the experience, commitment, and vision of the United States that it needs to tackle the challenges the World Bank faces today. His journey starts the way that mine did. He is the son of Cuban exiles who fled dictatorship in their country. His parents came to the United States in search of the American dream. His dad was in law enforcement. His mother was a teacher. And from them, Felice learned the value of public service. That's why Felice founded Raices de Esperanza, Roots of Hope, a nonprofit that empowers young people in Cuba through technology and entrepreneurship. It's why he worked for both the Bush and Obama administrations, advancing the United States national interest no matter which party was in the White House. At the same time, Felice has impressive private sector experience. He has been CEO of three different equity investment ventures, Emerge Americas, a platform focused on transforming Miami into the tech hub of the Americas, ClearPath, a tech company focused on revolutionizing the paper-based immigration filing process, and Libre, a venture-backed mobility tech company with operations in the United States and Mexico. In the wake of COVID, his understanding of finance, economic statecraft, and technology will help the United States and its like-minded partners make the concerted push to prevent economic collapse in the developing world. He should be in this post because we need to make sure that China won't continue getting away with their malign influence at the institutions that we, the United States, created to shape the international order. And if confirmed to this post at the World Bank, Felicia will advocate for our values. He'll stand up for democracy and human rights. So I urge my colleagues to support the nomination of Felicia Goroldo for the post of U.S. Alternate Executive Director for the World Bank. I don't, as the chairman, very often come to introduce individuals, but Felice, uh, you certainly deserve it. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Thank you very much, Senator Menendez. And it's very true, he doesn't often come to introduce folks, so um, it's an honor. Uh, let me continue with the remaining members of the panel and go to Henry Jardine, who is nominated to serve as ambassador to the republics of Mauritius and Seychelles. He has a strong record of leadership throughout his nearly 30-year foreign service career with service across four geographic regions in Washington, where he currently leads the State Department's Career Development and Assignments Office. Among his many leadership positions overseas, he served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Albania and Management Counselor at our Embassy in Thailand. Um, finally, I'm pleased to introduce Richard Weiner, who is the nominee to represent the United States at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, or the EBRD. Mr. Weiner is one of our leading international trade and investment lawyers and is qualified to practice law in both the European Union and the United States. A senior partner in the Washington and Brussels offices of the international law firm of Sidley Austin, he is a member of the law firm's Global Arbitration Trade and Advocacy Group. He spent more than 30 years working on U.S.-EU trade and investment policy and market access issues. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to 
ask um, Ms. Sullivan to begin with your opening statements and just point out I have a, a more complete um, opening statement for the record, which I will introduce without objection. Ms. Sullivan. Thank you for your kind introduction, Madam Chairperson, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today. I'm honored to be the President's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the African Union. I appreciate the trust and confidence President Biden and Secretary Blinken have in me. If confirmed, I pledge to work with you to advance our nation's interests through our partnership with that key institution and its member states. I'm joined by my husband, John, my pillar of support, who has accompanied me on each posting. Our sons, Dan and Scott, are here from Maryland and New Jersey, respectively. From my first experience in Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer in the DRC, I have felt drawn to the charms and challenges of the continent and its people. I have spent two-thirds of my 35 years of diplomatic service in Africa or working on African issues with postings in Cameroon, the Republic of Congo, Ghana twice, and Washington, D.C. Throughout my career, I have teamed up with committed interagency colleagues to advance U.S. diplomatic, economic, and security interests. A two-time ambassador, I have visited 33 African countries in all five regions on the continent. If confirmed as the seventh United States ambassador to the AU, I will be proud to represent our country, which has a sizable portion of Africa's sixth region, the diaspora. The AU brings together its member states to deliberate and act on the continent's most pressing issues and to establish standards by which all members can hold each other accountable. The U.S. mission to the AU enhances our engagement with and our ability to understand the perspective of the AU Commission and the AU member states. If confirmed, I will lead the talented USAU team to advance the administration's Africa strategy in which the U.S. partnership with the AU plays a central role. The strategy's mutually reinforcing objectives are to, one, foster openness and open societies, two, deliver democratic and security dividends, three, advance pandemic recovery and economic opportunity, and four, support conservation, climate adaptation, and a just energy transition. We have long partnered with AU on shared priorities, and the pathways of the strategy will support the AU's Agenda 2063 for a more prosperous and peaceful continent and bolster the region's ability to solve global problems alongside the United States. First, democracy and accountable governance remain essential for peace, security, and sustained economic growth. Recent democratic backsliding in some places undermines the progress African countries have made toward inclusive development. If confirmed, I will reinforce our shared commitment to democratic principles and the rule of law to include transparency, justice, free and fair elections with peaceful transfers of power, and respect for human rights. Second, fragility and ongoing conflicts in parts of Africa also threaten global and U.S. national security. They hinder economic growth and enable violent extremism to spread. The AU has made significant strides to prevent, respond to, and resolve armed conflict, most recently in Ethiopia, and to counter transnational threats. 
If confirmed, I will maintain capacity building efforts to achieve a more secure continent where people and nations can reach their full potential. Third, the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention led the continent's effective response to the COVID-19 pandemic by mobilizing health ministers, coordinating a continental strategy, and establishing a platform to procure vaccines. The collaboration between Africa CDC and our own CDC and other U.S. government agencies shaped our life-saving support to the continent. If confirmed, I will continue our partnership with the AU to improve global, security, global health security and strengthen African health systems. On the broader economic front, the African continental free trade area positions African governments to reduce tariff and non-tariff barriers, enhance regional integration, and increase trade and investment to form a $3.4 trillion trading block of an estimated 1.3 billion people. When fully implemented, this economic block will be the fifth largest in the world. If confirmed, I will champion additional American private sector investment in the growing African market to promote mutual prosperity and jobs on both sides of the Atlantic. Fourth, the United Nations recognizes Africa as the region most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. For example, four consecutive years of drought have created a food security crisis in the Horn of Africa that has been exacerbated by Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. If confirmed, I will work closely with the AU on addressing the impacts of climate change and help support a just energy transition through programs like Power Africa. Madam Chairperson and members of the committee, ranking member, thank you again for today's hearing. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much, Ms. Sanders Sullivan. Mr. Jardine. Chairwoman Shaheen, ranking member and members of the committee. I'm honored to appear before this committee today as President Biden's nominee to be the next U United States ambassador to the Republic of Mauritius and the Republic of Seychelles. I am thankful for the trust that the President and Secretary Blinken have placed in me to nominate me for this role, and I consider it a privilege to represent the United States of America. My parents immigrated to this country from the United Kingdom in the 1950s. My father experienced a childhood of poverty in North Wales, and my mother the devastating bombings, Nazi bombings of Liverpool. They understood the promise that the United States could offer, and from their example and experience comes my commitment of service to this country for over the past 30 years in both the United States Army and Department of State. As a career member of the Senior Foreign Service with extensive work experience in the Indo-Pacific region on a range of policy and management issues, I've developed the skills that will allow me to strengthen our relationship with both countries. While my professional experience has prepared me for the opportunity to serve as ambassador to Mauritius and the Seychelles, this is only possible with the great support of my wife, Kathleen Jardine, who's here with me today. She is presently a Fairfax County public teacher who was there as a partner through the long years far from family and in some difficult circumstances. I also note with pride my son Thomas, who while experiencing many disruptions in his young life and education as a result of my career, is now a successful college student in the Netherlands. In just over 50 years since gaining independence from the United Kingdom, Mauritius has achieved political stability through a commitment to democracy, establishment of a strong economy, and acceptance of ethnic diversity. Mauritius has shown the global community that it is model, both politically and economically, for Africa, 
the Indian Ocean region, and beyond. The United States also enjoys a positive bilateral relationship with the government of Seychelles, which in 2020 held free and fair elections and peacefully transitioned power to the opposition party for the first time since independence 46 years ago. We support Seychelles' efforts to solidify its democratic transition, support of regional peace, and to tackle climate change. Despite its high per capita income, Seychelles needs support to strengthen its financial system and anti-corruption regime. The United States is well-placed to provide assistance in these areas. Regional security is an important element of our bilateral relationship with both Mauritius and Seychelles, and I will seek additional ways we can partner to combat drug trafficking, transnational criminal activity, and illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing in the Indian Ocean. Although the United States Embassy is located in Mauritius, I intend to travel to Seychelles frequently as we continue to focus focus on expanding our bilateral relationship. Democracy promotion continues to be an important element of our foreign policy in Africa. Both Mauritius and Seychelles are models for the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. The 2020 election in Seychelles showed the world that the Seychellois are fiercely committed to democracy, while the Mauritian general elections are set to take place in 2024. I would work with both countries to strengthen their democratic systems and to spread their examples elsewhere. Of course, while pursuing all these objectives, I would make protecting Americans living and traveling in both Mauritius and Seychelles my highest priority. Again, I am honored to be the next amb- honored to be nominated to be the next ambassador to Mauritius and Seychelles, and if confirmed, I look forward to working closely with you and other members of the committee. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Gor- Gorodo. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? You are. Great. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee. I am humbled and honored to have been nominated by President Joe Biden to be the next United States Alternate Executive Director for the World Bank. I would also like to personally thank the Chairman, Chairman Menendez, for his very kind and moving introduction, for which I'm deeply grateful. I appreciate this opportunity to serve at such a critical time for both our nation and the world. I want to recognize several important individuals in my life without whom this would not be possible and who are present here today. I'd like to begin by thanking my wife of 13 years and my partner in all things for 19, Bianca Ferrer Corordo, and our two children, David, who is here present, and Catalina, who I'm sure is watching from home. I would also like to pause to recognize members of my family who are not here today, but who have played a pivotal role in my life. I'm tremendously appreciative to my mother, Marta Serramor, who was reunited with our creator seven years ago today, and to all my extended family for their love, sacrifice, and unwavering support throughout the years. As the chairman noted, I'm the son of Cuban exiles who fled a communist revolution, risking it all and leaving everything behind in search of freedom, opportunity, and the American dream. This great nation received them with open arms and gave them a fighting chance to make a better life for themselves and their family. And for these reasons, we have always been indebted to our country and sought to pay it forward. The call to public service was instilled in me by my family and by my faith. My father, Francisco Gorordo, served as a police officer for more than 25 years. 
and my mother worked in education for over two decades. They nurtured in me a purpose-driven resolve to ensure that we live up to the gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. To feed the hungry, heal the sick, and welcome the stranger. My Jesuit education and upbringing further cultivated my vocation to service, taking part in humanitarian missions in Latin America during my high school years, and then founding a non-governmental organization while I was in college called Roots of Hope, which still exists today and focuses on empowering Cuban youth to become the authors of their own futures. Following my graduation from Georgetown University, I proudly served in the U.S. Departments of Commerce, State, and Homeland Security during the administration of President George W. Bush. In 2011, I was appointed as a White House Fellow by President Barack Obama and served in the White House Office of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs, working with industry leaders on economic competitiveness programs. There, I developed and organized the first-ever White House Conference on Connecting the Americas, which included participation of business and government leaders from throughout the Americas in lead-up to the 2012 Summit of the Americas. In 2013, I returned home to Miami to pursue a career in entrepreneurship, and I served as CEO of three mission-driven technology companies as an investor and advisor at two venture capital funds with global mandates, one in healthcare and another in infrastructure. I believe this experience has prepared me to take on the important responsibilities that the President has nominated before at the World Bank. The Bank's mission is to end extreme poverty and promote shared prosperity in a sustainable way. Given Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine, which has worsened food insecurity around the world, the prolonged global pandemic, and the rising threat of authoritarian regimes like China, the bank remains a critically important institution to create sustainable and inclusive economic growth and resiliency for the most vulnerable, and to promote prosperity for people around the world. If confirmed, I will use my experience to help advance U.S. development foreign policy and national security priorities, while also expanding markets for U.S. products and services. Drawing on my fiduciary experience as an investor, executive, and board member of both for-profit and non-profit companies, I resolved to be a good steward of our tax dollars to ensure the bank's programs yield the greatest return on investment and uphold our values. I will also seek to engage with a diverse range of important stakeholders, including members of both parties, to ensure the interests of all Americans are represented in the bank's boardroom and projects. Moreover, I will draw on my two decades of experience in management and oversight to promote the greatest degree of integrity, transparency, and accountability in the bank's operations. As a first-generation American whose family suffered at the hands of a communist totalitarian regime, I am deeply committed to honoring, protecting, and advancing the cause of democracy, human rights, and economic prosperity here and abroad. If confirmed, I will work relentlessly to uphold U.S. values and advance our interests around the world. Again, I'm so grateful to you all for your consideration of my nomination, and I would be happy to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Weiner. Uh, thank you for your kind introduction, Madam Chair, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee. I'm honored to have been nominated by President Biden to be the U.S. Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and humbled to appear before you today. I wish to take a moment to recognize several individuals in my life, in particular my wife of 33 years, Joanne Weiner, who's seated behind me, 
uh, herself a former U.S. Treasury Department tax economist and now professor of economics at George Washington University. Watching online are our three adult children, Josh, Stephen, and Naomi, whose love sustains us both. I would also like to recognize family members who are not here today. My late parents, Professors Herbert and Dora Weiner, came to this country from Hitler's Europe and crafted distinguished academic careers, first in New York and then at UCLA. My father was born in Vienna and raised in London, coming to the United States as an immigrant in 1939. My mother was born in Germany and fled the Nazis, first to France, then Morocco, then Cuba, before entering America as a refugee in December 1942. My parents seized the enormous opportunity of this nation, teaching my brothers Tim and Tony and me of America's greatness, but also of her essential goodness. Their memories are a blessing to all who knew them. My family's experience fueled my professional pursuits. I was educated at Harvard College, where I served as the student chairman of the John F. Kennedy Institute of Politics, the University of Cambridge, and Columbia Law School. I clerked for an extraordinary federal judge, the Honorable Barefoot Sanders, before entering private practice. For 35 years, I have worked on international trade, energy, environmental, and investment issues, including the past 19 years as a partner in the Washington and Brussels offices of the international law firm Sidley Austin. I'm dual qualified as a lawyer in the European Union and the United States, and I've worked on U.S.-European issues throughout my career, including 10 years resident in Brussels, where I was the founding managing partner of Sidley's Brussels office. I hope to use my personal and professional background as a foundation for taking on the important responsibilities of U.S. Director of the EBRD at this critical time. As members of the committee know, the EBRD was formed after the collapse of Soviet communism to promote open markets and private entrepreneurship in Central and Eastern Europe, and in turn to promote stability, democracy, and the rule of law. Pursuit of these goals advances America's political and economic interests in foreign policy, national security, diplomacy, development, and commerce. Overall, the bank has done a commendable job advancing market transitions, improving the business climate, and promoting private sector solutions in emerging economies in Europe, Eurasia, the Middle East, and North Africa. The bank is unique among development banks in having a political mandate <clears throat> to promote democracy, the rule of law, and democratic institutions. A clear-eyed assessment would suggest that its results in this area have been uneven. Should I be confirmed, I look forward to harnessing the comparative advantages of the EBRD to help rebuild Ukraine, wean Europe off Russian fossil fuels, green the economy of borrower nations, and promote democracy and democratic institutions in accordance with the bank's charter. Nowhere is the bank's role more vital than in Ukraine and other frontline states fighting to resist Russia's unprovoked aggressions. The bank has played and will play a vital role in sustaining national economies in the region and addressing immediate needs such as food and energy security. The bank has taken important steps via loan deferral, liquidity support and trade financing, and Congress appropriated an additional $500 million to the bank in its second Ukraine supplemental this May. Over the longer term, the bank will help Ukraine in reconstruction, including rebuilding infrastructure, revitalizing the engines of economic growth, 
binding the wounds of its people, and fostering private sector job creation. Nearly a century ago, my grandfather fled instability and anti-Semitism in Central Europe to work as a banker in London. It is an extraordinary testament to history's arc that I may have the honor to return there now to promote American values in the region. I'm grateful for your consideration, and I'd be delighted to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. McCuller, is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. Chairwoman Shaheen, Ranking Member Portman, distinguished members, it is an honor to appear before you as the President's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Tajikistan. I am grateful to be joined today by my dear mother, Monina McCuller, and I want to acknowledge my brother, Jose, who is watching from home in San Francisco. Both have support, supported me throughout my foreign service career. And I would like to take this opportunity before the Senate to recognize and honor my late father, Manuel McCuller Sr., who inspired and encouraged me to embark on this journey of service to our great country. If confirmed, I will return to Central Asia, where I began my career in 1996 at the U.S. Embassy in Turkmenistan. I was drawn to this region having studied the former Soviet Union, and I keep returning because of the critical importance it plays in our national security and the opportunity to use my experience in a challenging environment to advance our shared interests. Tajikistan is a fascinating country, rich in culture and long at the crossroads of history bordering Afghanistan and China, and exposed to Russian influence, Tajikistan is seeking to diversify its foreign partners. And the United States has proven itself as a reliable partner over the course of our 30-year diplomatic relationship. Today, we have an opportunity to strengthen this relationship by easing economic and food insecurity caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and by helping Tajikistan to diversify away from PRC investments. Tajikistan is balancing between a cautious generation that experienced the brutal civil war and a younger generation that is keen to advocate for itself and address challenges. We can seize this critical moment by building people-to-people -people connections. Tajikistan is an increasingly important security partner and has long been a key partner in supporting Afghanistan's stability. If confirmed, I will prioritize bilateral and regional security cooperation. I will also not hesitate to urge the government to strengthen rule of law, demonstrate accountability in government, governance, protect freedom of expression, including for the press, and uphold the rights of minority and marginalized groups, including persons with disabilities, women, and religious and ethnic minorities. I will stress how addressing human rights can benefit Tajikistan's economic and security goals by attracting investment and preventing the radicalization of potential terrorists. If confirmed, I will work to expand and deepen our economic efforts with Tajikistan 
by supporting initiatives that develop accountable business practices and transparent institutions, improve the investment climate, reduce corruption, and create an equitable business environment. Tajikistan is eager to become a regional leader on addressing environmental challenges. So there are tremendous opportunities for enhanced partnership that can ultimately lead to a more prosperous Tajikistan. Protecting Americans abroad is the State Department's most important responsibility. If confirmed, I will endeavor to ensure the safety and health of our embassy team, as well as of all American citizens in Tajikistan. The diversity of our staff is our greatest strength. I remain committed to an inclusive work environment consistent with the Biden administration's and this committee's vision of a State Department workforce culture that values collegiality, teamwork, and respect. In closing, Madam Chair, Ranking Member, members of the committee, our goal is a stable, secure, sovereign, and prosperous Tajikistan. If confirmed, I will seek to strengthen our bilateral security, reinforce people-to-people -people and economic ties, and promote the democratic values we share. I pledge to work closely with you to strengthen the United States strategic partnership with Tajikistan. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today, and I welcome your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to each of you. I'm going to now turn it over to Senator Haggerty while I go vote, and I shall return shortly. Thank you, Senator Shaheen, and I shall see you shortly, too, and we'll get this voting underway. I hope you'll uh, uh, understand and appreciate some of the complexities of navigating these hearings in the afternoon while we have votes ongoing. Um, I would like to first and foremost congratulate all of you for being here today. In your various roles, you'll have the opportunity to represent the most exceptional nation in the world. And I can't think of a higher honor than uh, the ones that you have been nominated for. So my deep congratulations to you and my deep appreciation to all of your families for the support that they'll give you uh, in, in hopes of being very successful in the roles that uh, you will fulfill if you are confirmed. Uh, to our career foreign service officers, I want to thank you for your service. It's been my pleasure to have uh, the opportunity to work closely with many of you, and uh, I appreciate what you and your families have done for our nation. And then for, for Mr. Gerardo and Mr. Weiner, I want to congratulate you and welcome you to a new world. Uh, a little bit less so for you, Mr. Gerardo, because I understand you were a White House fellow, as was I, uh, a few years after I was, uh, I, I might say, but uh, congratulations on that. I think that, serves as an ins that service uh, probably served as an inspiration for you to be sitting here today. So. Uh, very pleased to see you here. And uh, Mr. Weiner, it's great to see you. Our mutual friend, Tennessean, Alice Randall, who is a professor at my alma mater, Vanderbilt, uh, was kind enough to introduce us, and I appreciate the conversations that we've had. Um, we touched on this uh, somewhat, but I'd like to come back to, to our conversations, uh, particularly with respect to the challenge that you'll be facing as Ukraine needs to be rebuilt and a number of areas that, that will be a matter of focus. Um, I'd like to get your perspective on your top priorities as you investigate and pursue that challenge. Well, Senator, thank you very much for the kind uh, introduction and <clears throat> it, for being so gracious as to spend time with me uh, before Thanksgiving. I, I can't tell you how much Certainly. I appreciate it. Um, it's hard to find words 
sufficient to condemn Russia's unprovoked attacks on Ukraine. Besides the tens of thousands killed and wounded, uh, Russia's targeting of civilians, its destruction of utilities, oil, gas, and water, its bombardment of hospitals and apartment blocks are uh, absolutely grotesque. And we've seen uh, at the economic level, if I can limit discussion there, uh, a third of the population estimated to have been displaced and GDP fallen 35 percent approximately. We thought we'd seen the end of land wars in Europe, but obviously that is not the case. And the United States to date has been the leader in security assistance to Ukraine and economic aid uh, to uh, the country. Before the war, uh, Ukraine was already the third largest client of the EBRD. Mm -hmm. The EBRD has had more than 500 projects in Ukraine and has invested more than 5 billion euros to date in the country. Uh, since the war, uh, since uh, the wintertime, uh, the bank has established a special support fund for grants and risk sharing. Uh, approximately 3 billion uh, euros of commitments through the end of next year, of which the, their Congress has appropriated $500 million through the second uh, Ukraine supplemental in May. The focus of this uh, support fund is really in five areas, food security, energy security, infrastructure, trade facilitation, and medicines and pharmaceuticals. So that's the initial focus of the EBRD. Uh, over the longer term, of course, we look towards uh, the relief efforts, phasing into reconstruction, phasing into modernization, and ultimately into EU accession. Um, it will look something like the Marshall Plan, but it will be different in very important respects. Yeah. Uh, there will be more than one donor. Uh, there will be one primary recipient instead of 16. And of course, um, unlike 1945, the shooting may not have stopped or may not have stopped in all, uh, all of Ukraine. And therefore, it's a unique situation. Each of these steps will overlap. And it requires several things which you and your, given your private sector expertise, and given your tenure as ambassador in Japan, understand very well. We've got to find a way to pool political risk. We've got to find a way um, to provide insurance coverage that will bring the private sector in. And we've got to rethink uh, how force majeure provisions will be provided. Let me, I've gone on too long, but let me just mention one other thing. Oversight is critical. Accountability is critical. Transparency is critical. We've got to make sure the money is spent for its intended uses. Mm -hmm. Ukraine historically has the third, considered the third most corrupt country in Europe, and we've got to make sure that high integrity standards are applied to American taxpayers' dollars spent in support of Ukraine. I have utmost appreciation for the final point that you made, and a great deal of concern given the amount of taxpayer money that the United States government has already committed and the lack of clarity that we have at this point in terms of where those funds are directed. If I could come back again to the, um, to, to the role of the bank and specifically comment on a point of concern that I have, um, and I'm, I'm going to stay with you for just a moment, Mr. Weiner. Uh, this is on the bank's website. Um, the bank, quote, is aligned with some of the stated objectives of the Belt and Road Initiative of China. And it is something that I think um, we need to look at um, 
back in June of last year, uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan said that the United States, is, along with like-minded countries in the G7, should be looking to embrace alternatives to the Belt and Road Initiative. I could not agree with that statement more. And I am very concerned about the abuse of debt trap financing and the predatory practices that the CCP uses in the Belt and Road Initiative all around the world. I'm also very concerned about China's continued support for Russia in the face of their invasion of Ukraine. So I am going to ask you about your position on the European Bank's continued cooperation on projects that are associated with Communist China's Belt and Road Initiative. Senator, thank you for that very important question. It's no question that confronting China is perhaps the essential U.S. foreign policy challenge uh, of the 21st century. Uh, let me take the question, if I may, in two parts. The first is that China is not a client of the bank. It does not receive loans from the EBRD. Uh, it's a shareholder, but its shareholding is less than one-tenth of one percent of total shares. I believe the correct number is 0.097%. Uh, put differently, the United States with a 10% shareholding is more than 100 times, has more than 100 times the say of China in terms of the bank's operations. Now, that is not a fully responsive, that's not fully responsive to your question. China is a malign actor. Mm -hmm. And as Congress and the administration have made very clear, we're in competition with China's form of economic statecraft. The use of state-owned enterprises, unfair trade practices, theft of technology, forced labor, mm -hmm. uh, environmental degradation, the list is, goes on from yes. there. Um, the EBRD is essential to the United States and its allies in confronting Chinese reach in the client countries, the 37 client countries of the EBRD. We have to offer an alternative to Chinese financing. It's an opportunity for us to project a Western power. And we've got to make sure, as an example, and we talked about this the other day, and I was grateful for your comments, we've got to make sure that the life cycle costs of projects don't allow the Chinese to offer cheap, uh, stand, low standards, cheap uh, construction, uh, and it, at inflated prices that mm -hmm. we've seen, and you've mentioned, and correctly so. It's essential <clears throat> that we provide an alternative that is the opposite of the Chinese model. And, and there, if I may, one other comment. Uh, when we talked the other day, you mentioned JBIC, and I think I would be very grateful to, if we had the opportunity to, to uh, get your expertise with respect to JBIC and, and similar Asian institutions um, in terms of their uh, role in supporting what the EBRD and similar institutions are doing uh, to confront China uh, in, in Central Asia and elsewhere. I think that could be very helpful because uh Japan has taken an increasingly greater interest in what's happening, particularly in the wake of the attack on Ukraine by Russia. Yes. Uh, they have uh, been attending NATO meetings. Uh, they are much more focused, I think, on the region broadly today. And I do believe that there's great opportunity, as you and I discussed, and I'm more than happy to facilitate that. Um, Mr. Jordan, I don't want to miss the opportunity to get your perspective on China's role with the bank and um, your perspective on how you would handle and manage the relationship on behalf of the United States. 
Well, first of all, thank you, Senator, and um, thank you for your, your kind words about um, my, my previous service and uh, our, our shared affinity for the White House Fellowship, which was undoubtedly a transformative experience for me personally, <clears throat> and very much uh, which has helped cultivate in me a, a calling for public service. And, um, and so in the spirit of the fellowship, I have seek to, in this new role, if confirmed, pay it forward and, um, and, and take to heart um, all that has been invested in, in my, my time as a fellow um, and in my, my, uh, my great appreciation for this country and what it's done for my family. I would like to echo the sentiments of uh, Mr. Weiner uh, and associate myself with his comments, especially with regards to China and its role as a malign actor. Um, there is no question, as the Secretary of the Treasury and Deputy Secretary have said, we are in a strategic competition with China, and um, there is no doubt, and I've seen it firsthand in, uh, in Latin America, operating there previously, um, how it acts in an adversarial way as it tries to uh, steal our intellectual property and undermine uh, American values every chance it gets. Uh, so for those reasons, I would um, push, I would, uh, I would ensure that we push back and uh, outcompete China at every chance that we get. My understanding is that in 2018, as part of the capital increase of the bank, um, the bank made certain commitments about graduating uh, companies, uh, countries that meet uh, the criteria for graduation. My understanding is that China, because of its high per capita income, its uh, own institutional capacity, as well as its uh, uh, access to other alternative forms of, of financing has met that criteria. And so I would use the voice and vote of the U.S. government to ensure that we push uh, China to graduate from, uh, from the World Bank. Um, let's stay on. Uh, welcome, Madam Chairman. Um, I was trying to keep a conversation going while you were. Uh, and you did a very nice job. Thank business. you. Um, I will turn the gavel back to you. Okay, well, thank you very much, Senator Haggerty. Um, I'm, I will try not to repeat um, your questions, although certainly on China and the World Bank, I guess I, I do want to follow up, um, and forgive me if you've already responded to this, um, but as soon as I can find it. So I, I know that Senator Haggerty was asking about the World Bank's engagement with China, and Chinese firms have received $52 billion out of the $280 billion of outstanding World Bank contracts, and um, at the same time, state-owned Chinese firms have been debarred for violating procurement policies. So can you talk about how we should be addressing this challenge and um, is, is the World Bank's reliance on Chinese firms problematic? And what can we do to address that? And, and also, can you speak to whether we should support a suspension of Russia's membership from the World Bank? Well, first of all, thank you, Senator, for your question. Um, this is actually a question that's very near and dear to my heart. 
Uh, I first started working with our multilateral development banks when I worked at the Department of Commerce and worked with our commercial service liaisons at the various MDBs, including the World Bank. Uh, specifically, working with them to help American companies uh, be able to, to win procurement opportunities. And so it would be a priority of mine, if confirmed, to help our, our American companies get a fair share of the contracts that they are competing for, level the playing field, and expand uh, U.S. markets for uh, U.S. products and, uh, and services. With regards to China, as I stated with, uh, with Senator Haggerty, uh, there is no question that we are in a strategic competition with, with China and that when it is uh, looking to uh, undercut our, our values or steal our intellectual property, that it is acting in an adversarial way. Um, moreover, uh, with regards to procurement opportunities, Specifically, I would advocate for um, a, a greater focus and emphasis on lifetime uh, costs and life cycle costs, uh, as well as value for, for costs versus the lowest bid, which is how oftentimes China wins its, its contracts. Lastly, I would push for uh, resourcing the World Bank's in integrity unit to ensure that we are combating corruption everywhere, uh, and specifically also in our procurement. With regards to, to, uh, to Russia, um, I would like, as I stated in, in, in the record, to condemn uh, Russia for its illegal and unprovoked war in, in Ukraine. Uh, there is no question that, um, that, uh, that in the, the bank um, right now, uh, since, uh, since uh, the bank has ceased operations, rather, and in Russia, and also uh, ceased all projects in Russia, that Russia is isolated. And, uh, and so I would work very closely with our allies and build a coalition to ensure that we further isolate uh, Russia. And I am happy, if confirmed, to work with my colleagues to get an answer to your question with regards to suspension. And when you talked about focusing on some of the other areas that are important other than just the lowest bid um, for Chinese firms, is there support among other um, among the international community and other colleagues at the bank to um, put in place those kinds of um, criteria for making determinations on loans? Well, Senator, uh, thank you for your follow-up question. With regards uh, you know, to, to the specifics of those details, given that I'm not in the administration, not yet confirmed, I can't speak to, to those details of uh, bank management and, uh, and, and other executive directors, uh, but what I can say that I will commit myself wholeheartedly to work to build coalition with our allies to be able to advance our values and our interests, especially in, the, in this regard. Thank you. Mr. Weiner, staying on international finance, um, I want to I ask you to explore a little bit more about the importance of the EBRD to rebuilding Ukraine after the war and the kinds of um, initiatives that you think could be supported by the European community? Well, th thank you very much for your question, Senator. Uh, the rebuilding of Ukraine, the efforts that have begun, or at least are being thought about today, really have four stages to them. There's the relief phase, which we're in now, efforts then ultimately to rebuild, then modernize, and then ready Ukraine for uh, accession to the European Union. 
uh, it'll be a form uh, of Marshall Plan, but that really doesn't do it justice because the f fighting may not have stopped. Also, there will be multiple donors, not just one, and there'll be one principal target, not to minimize the needs of the other frontline states, but the principal target will be Ukraine itself, not 16 countries uh, as it was in, in the post-World War II period. It's absolutely critical that the multiple donors that speak, that commit to funding U Ukrainian reconstruction actually step up, that there be burden sharing. The commitments uh, that have been made by the EU, since that's your specific question, as I understand it, and of course, like the others on this panel, I'm not yet in a position um, to speak in terms of the administration's understanding, but uh, my understanding is that those commitments have not yet been lived up to, that there's a shortfall with respect to Ukraine, and, and that's not acceptable. It can't be acceptable as we talk about um, the rebuilding in a very uh, different sort of way. Uh, because the shooting may not have stopped, we may be talking about rebuilding in certain parts of the country or certain sectors of the economy, and that it may not be unidirectional, it won't be unidimensional, it'll be different. Uh, as part of that process, accountability, transparency, uh, oversight, uh, return on investment is absolutely critical because if the money isn't wisely spent, if we can't account for the money, there won't be a next tranche. And no one interested in the future of Ukraine should be willing to accept that result, including the Ukrainians, of course, themselves. Um, one other point, as we get closer to European Union accession, historically, the European Commission and the member states, the European Investment Bank and others have funded that process they did it for every other member state seeking accession as they approached, as they figured how to accept the acquis communautaire in their laws and worked on infrastructure and so on that met European standards. There's no reason that shouldn't happen in this case as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. I especially appreciate the accountability piece because I think there will be more and more focus on that as um, time goes on. Another area of Europe that I think that is a great concern to me is what's happening in the Western Balkans. Um, it's a part of Europe that I think we have taken our eyes off of after the end of the conflict that followed the breakup of, the, of Yugoslavia, and we're seeing the results of um, not keeping a focus on what's happening there. And one of the biggest challenges, of course, is the economy in countries like Bosnia-Herzegovina. So can you talk about um, what, what kind of avenues the EBRD might explore to help um, countries like Bosnia-Herzegovina? Senator, thank you. That's a very, very important question, and thank you for posing it. I also uh, wanted to welcome your leadership on this issue, and particularly the legislation you introduced uh, in the summer with respect to the Western Balkans. Uh, the EBRD has played a, a key role uh, in the Western Balkans, in the six nations of the Western Balkans, through its financing, its policy engagement, and through hosting of regional summit meetings there to promote regional integration 
and to advance the Western Balkans as an attractive investment destination. And both of those are needed to uh, maintain the region's stability. Uh, pursuant to the EBRD's investment plan uh, to advance regional integration, the bank has invested more than 15 billion dollars, uh, sorry, 15 billion euros in the region, and it's investing more than 1 billion euros a year. Uh, it's more than any other multilateral development bank, uh, and it shows, again, that an institution like the EBRD uh, can have a big voice in small nations. The key focus of the bank's operations have been to build a connective tissue. I, I use that phrase both talking about the infrastructure, the building of highways that link the countries, but also in terms of setting up a registry for businesses uh, in the region. 1.5 million businesses are linked together in a way to help will facilitate their cooperation. And the, the bank has placed its emphasis in four areas where I think historically it has done very well. Uh, policy reform and good governance, uh, investment in the private sector, which is the bank's focus, and particularly in small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, green economy transition, to use their parlance, including an issue that I know is very important to you, which is um, the uh, curbing ties to Russian fossil fuels, and uh, trying to overcome uh, the digital divide and help form the digital transformation in these six countries, uh, particularly to help youth and to help women. And, and on that point, um, let me just say that as the son, the husband, and the father of professional women, the issue of women's empowerment is of critical importance to me, and I would welcome uh, the opportunity to work with you and your staff on those issues, should I be fortunate enough to be confirmed. Well, thank you. I'm sure we will take you up on that, should you be confirmed. Um, Ms. Sanders-Sullivan, one, one of the developments that I have found quite concerning um, as the result of Russia's war on Ukraine has been what that's meant to the availability of food for African countries. And what's even more concerning is not just that the food is not available because of the blockade of the Black Sea, although, and I appreciate Turkey's um, help in trying to negotiate some ships to get that grain out of Ukraine, but it's really the, the disinformation that Russia has spread in Africa that says that it's the United States that's at fault, not Russia's war on Ukraine. Can you talk about the kinds of things that we might be doing and should be doing with the African Union to help correct that misinformation or disinformation, because I think it's deliberate um, in a way that um, addresses the responsibility for what's really happening with the food stocks? Senator, thank you very much for raising this important point. Um, the disinformation has become on steroids. There's always been disinformation, but I think the ready availability of um, all the social media and the speed with which it circulates around the globe is unprecedented. Uh, and I think we do need to do a better job of um, not just getting our story out um, 
in a very traditional way, but also um, developing new tools where we can meet this disinformation on the, on the battlefield. Interestingly, this week, um, Merriam-Webster Dictionary uh, announced that the word of the year was gaslighting. Um, and I, if confirmed, I pledge to, to take that on um, in a way that not only um, tells our story about the good things that we're doing with Feed the Future, with um, working with African partners on a just energy transition, um, working on uh, amplifying the availability of, of fertilizer, uh, and, and also on the food and agriculture piece, working to address the root causes as well as the real-time humanitarian crises that have been um, exacerbated, certainly by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also um, the climate issues. So all of these are intertwined. Um, there's no one answer to it, but we do have our Global Engagement Center. Um, if confirmed, I would uh, work with my team to figure out ways that we might um, tackle that, not just you know at the level of the African Union, um, but there are no more borders when it comes to information these days, uh, and figuring out a way to uh, get our story out there and straighten out the disinformation that is circulating um, so thank you for the question. Well, thank you. I, I think that this is an issue that is also about how do we better coordinate um, our messages across various agencies of um, the United States. So USAID, state, um, all, of, all of the efforts that we have, DOD, um, because we don't, we're not always talking with the same message in a way that I think would be important as we try and counter the disinformation that's out there. So I appreciate your response. Mr. Jardine, um, I had the opportunity a number of years ago to meet with a former president of Mauritius. And one of the things that really struck me, it was at a time when um, we were trying to do some work in Africa to address um, the peaceful transition of power. And he had a very impressive story to tell about um, Mauritius' ability to um, better um, transition than most African countries. Why do you think that is? And um, what do you think, can you assess the current governance in both Mauritius and Seychelles and, and how it compares um, Madam Chairwoman, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to ask, answer that question about uh, democracy in Mauritius, why it has experienced successful democratic system, and similarly the experiences that are ongoing in, in Seychelles. Um, again, I, I think both countries, as, as you noted, do represent potential models for sub-Saharan Africa because of the success they've had. I, I think it's hard to characterize why you know, some countries are more successful than others. I think in the case of Mauritius, one has been, you know, focused on education, which is critical. It's not a large population, so there's a sense of community, I think, that is helpful. Uh, in addition, I think there's a strong sense of family and stability within the community. And there's also the historical traditions of parliamentary democracy that they inherited. 
Um, but again, it's, in some cases, it may be hard to just assess any one country and it's the unique development. And sometimes it, it, there's also an element of luck, I would have to say. Um, in the context of Seychelles, also similar situation, which it gained independence from the United Kingdom, small, um, you know, s small population, a fairly uh, close community. However, it experienced a period of a single party state, a coup d'etat in 1977, and which essentially suppressed or stopped the democratic progress. However, more recently, they've had a very successful transition, uh, democratic elections and a, and a transition to an opposition party as I mentioned, in, just in 2020. So again, I think it's very encouraging that they, that in Seychelles, that they are seeing sort of a path forward and consolidating the, the success they've had on democracy. And again, I, I think from the United States position, we want to try to encourage others to look at uh, Mauritius and Seychelles as a model and to see if those countries can assist. I know they're very engaged within the context of the African Union and see that membership is very important. And so I would hope that through that, for a forum that they would be able to, again, exchange and develop that uh, uh, perspective on democracy within the context of that multilateral organization. Again, if confirmed, that would be one area that I want to continue to focus on extensively, which is promoting the democratic uh, progress that those two countries have experienced. Uh, I think the key approach would be to engage broadly, inclusively, and to reach a whole cross-section of the communities in both islands, both, both republics. Thank you, Madam, Sec uh, Madam Chairwoman. Thank I you. hope I answered your, my, your question. Yes, that's helpful. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thanks, Madam Chairman. Uh, Mr. Garrardo, uh, I want to talk about energy. Uh, global philanthropist Bill Gates explains that, quote, increasing access to electricity uh, is critical to lifting the world's poor out of poverty, something we can agree for the first time in decades, though, the number of people around the world without access to electricity is actually set to rise uh, in 2022. Uh, that means about 775 million people living without electricity. Due to inflation, the energy crisis, uh, failed development policies, these people are struggling to safely and reliably cook and heat their homes. Uh, in fact, nearly 3 billion people today in this, on this globe today rely on wood and waste for household energy. Uh, people living in poor and developing nations want and need a stable energy supply. Uh, they're looking for power generation that provides energy security, that helps create jobs, and improves their lives. Well, traditional fuels are a vital tool for escaping poverty. They always have been. Uh, yet over the past few years, the World Bank has been imposing restrictions on the financing of traditional energy projects. It's a policy decision. It is critical that the World Bank immediately lift these harmful restrictions that are hurting people around the globe, people that they claim to be helping. To achieve its mission, the World Bank must embrace, not exclude, affordable energy resources. Ultimately, the solution to energy poverty doesn't lie in limiting options, but in using all available options for people in need. So if confirmed, will you commit to ensuring the World Bank is promoting all forms of energy projects across the globe, including oil, natural gas, and coal? Well, Senator, first of all, thank you for, for that question. Um, I actually cut my, my teeth in the private sector working in the energy, uh, energy sector uh, and continue through my work at a private equity fund focused on infrastructure working in this sector. Uh, so this is a, a, a question very near and dear to my heart. 
you know, with regards to the specifics of the current you know, bank and, and its, its policies and, and programs, obviously not confirmed yet and, and not in the administration, so I can't speak to those, those details, but my understanding as Deputy Secretary of Treasury has said, it is vitally important for the U.S. and our allies uh, to uh, take steps to ensure that developing countries have the resources they need for public health and economic recovery, especially during this very difficult time after the pandemic. And so if confirmed, I will work with Treasury and bank staff to support the most vulnerable countries and ensure that these countries have access to the tools needed to mitigate and adapt to the impact of climate change, as well as to have the energy that they need to be able to promote their own economies and to balance the short-term and long-term needs of, uh, of their development. In addition to that, I commit myself to evaluating each project on its own merits and in aligned with uh, the country's strategy and needs according to, to the bank and U.S. regulations and uh, Treasury guidance from my colleagues at, at Treasury um, to ensure that we are upholding the highest standards. Uh, and given that you're not confirmed yet and we'll consult with the folks from Treasury, the U.S. Department of Treasury announced plans to end support for fossil fuels at multilateral development banks. They said, except for exceptional circumstances. So to me, I want to know your opinion. What are exceptional circumstances in which the United States would support a fossil fuel project at the World Bank? Senator, thank you for your, for your follow-up question. As, um, yeah, as, as I shared and as you stated, I'm not currently confirmed to this role and not in the administration. Uh, but I do commit myself to work with my Treasury colleagues to uh, get you a response to, to your question. C can you tell me what actions the United States has taken already to end World Bank support for fossil fuel? Again, you're, uh, Senator, currently not, not in the, yeah. the role, so I can't speak to the specifics and, and details. My understanding is, um, as I, I shared, that uh, the, the current the administration is focused on balancing the short-term and long-term needs of each, each country. If confirmed, I will work to, uh, to judge each project based on its own merits, taking into account the country's strategy and needs, and uh, ensure that it's aligned with our, our U.S. Uh, regulations and, and policy, as well as uh, the bank's uh, guidance. With regard to Russia and the World Bank, uh, the World Bank has not provided any new financing for Russia since the invasion of Crimea uh, in 2014. So we're going back now eight years. In March of this year, the World Bank suspended all programming in Russia. Uh, there's been some discussion by uh, analysts that Russia should be suspended from its membership in the international financial institutions. Do you support a suspension of Russia's membership from the World Bank? Thank you, Senator, uh, for, for that question. As I, I shared with the, the chair as well as with Senator Haggerty when they asked a similar question, I um, take this opportunity to condemn Russia's unprovoked and illegal war in Ukraine. My understanding, as you stated, is that the bank has ceased all operations in, in Russia as well as uh, is not uh, financing any additional projects in Russia. And I will work tirelessly, tirelessly with our allies in building coalition to effectively isolate Russia. Um, and I can get you an answer back on. Thank you. Uh, Madam Chairman, if I may, I have one question on China. Thank, thank you, Madam Chairman. <clears throat> uh, through the, this is regarding China's predatory land lending. You know, through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, the Chinese Communist Party offers countries the ability to borrow a lot of money for infrastructure projects. Problem is these countries accumulate large amounts of debt, uh, a debt to China, 
They're unable to pay it back while still not achieving the development gains that the countries are seeking. Unable to escape the massive debt owed to China, countries face default or forfeiture of strategic assets and natural resources. We're seeing this around the world. <clears throat> so on top of the financial pressure, countries are now facing the economic hardships caused by coronavirus, inflation, energy crisis, things you've raised. This is a recipe for disaster. What actions do you believe the World Bank should take, and how should we ensure that American taxpayers aren't bailing out Chinese financial institutions and further enabling China's predatory lending? Thank you again, Senator, for, for that question regarding China. As I shared with the, the chair as well with Senator Haggerty on similar questions, I believe we are, as, deputy, as the Secretary of Treasury and the Deputy Secretary have stated, in a strategic competition with China, and that China is, in fact, a malign actor that tries to undercut our American values and interests every chance that it gets, and that acts in an adversarial way, specifically also when it is trying to steal our intellectual property. In addition to that, with regards to procurement at the bank, um, you know, this is something that is very near and dear to my, my heart. As I had shared with the, with the chair, I first started my career working at the Commerce Department with our commercial service officers at the various multilateral development banks, including the World Bank, to help American companies be able to compete and get their fair share of, of contracts and to expand markets for U.S. products and services. And so I would work very closely with our, our allies and with uh, the bank management to ensure that American companies are able to compete for, for those opportunities. And then with regards to China itself, it, with regards to um, its, uh, its role at, at the bank, my understanding is that in 2018, as part of the capital increase of the bank, the bank made certain commitments to graduate uh, com countries that have met the criteria for graduation and that China, because of its high per capita income, its own institutional capacity, as well as all alternative sources of, uh, of financing, has met that criteria. And I would work very closely to push back on, on China in, in regards to its adversarial actions, as well as to ensure that it, it, is gra it graduates as, uh, as the bank has made that commitment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chairman. Thank you, Senator Barrasso. Um, I just want to finish up with a few questions for Mr. McCuller um, with respect to Tajikistan. Can you talk about what, what we're seeing in terms of Tajikistan's economy from Russia's war on Ukraine? Thank you, Madam Chair, for your question and for highlighting this very important issue. Um, I think it's important to note first and recognize the significant levers and pressure points that Russia has over Tajikistan, particularly the reliance on remittances from up to a million Tajik migrant workers in Russia, and Mo Moscow's control over critical trade, infrastructure, transportation, and energy linkages. So they do have significant levers, and the government of Tajikistan has long sought to diversify its economic partners. Russia's war against Ukraine has underscored the critical importance of continuing that approach. And I would add that supporting options and choices for the Tajik government and the Tajik people um, has long underpinned our approach to the bilateral relationship with an eye towards enhancing the country's security, prosperity, and sovereignty. 
If confirmed, I will continue this approach and continue to have these discussions with the Tajik uh, government and our partners. I do want to add um, that it's also important to recognize that in the face of the tremendous pressure and economic challenges resulting from Russia's war in Ukraine, Tajikistan continues to admirably attempt to pursue its own independent course. And I could offer several examples recently. It has continued to resist calls and pressure to join the Eurasian Economic Union. It has resisted calls to deploy peacekeeping troops from the Collective Security Treaty Organization to its own borders. And most significantly, the government warned its own citizens, Tajik migrant workers in Russia, not to participate in Moscow's illegal war against the Ukrainian people, underscoring that such activities would be in violation of Tajikistan's own laws. So again, I do want to uh, recognize the challenges they face and commit to working in partnership with the government and with our like-minded friends to support their efforts to diversify economic relations. Um, it's impressive that the government has taken that position. Has Russia responded in any way to, to their admonition to Tajik citizens? I am aware of media reporting that there was continued pressure on Tajik migrant workers. There have been reports of document checks and threats of re revoking registration and visas. And again, this is a significant threat to the economy uh, and the livelihoods of individual Tajiks and families. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to each of you. I'm being told I need to go vote um, so we can close out our votes this afternoon, but um, we will leave the record of this hearing open until close of business tomorrow, November 30th, and I hope that if you do receive any questions from my colleagues on the committee that you will respond as soon as possible. Our hope is to advance your nominations in an expeditious way, um, I hope, before the end of the year, and uh, so... Anything you can do to help us get that done would be appreciated. And again, thank you to each of you for your willingness to serve the country. At this time, I will close this hearing on the Committee on Foreign Relations.